You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 437. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 5th of August in the year of COVID, 2020. today's episode, two small planes collide mid-air over the skies of Alaska. A fuel truck rams into a jet in Russia. Not sure what the jet did to deserve that. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, names to conjure with. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 437 is ready for pushback. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, GA. And here to help me with all of this today, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, Jeff. Lovely to see you again. Looking forward to a great show. It's just us again. It's a bit sad. Where are the rest of the team then? Well, she's going to join us sometime soon, we're hoping. Oh, okay, good. All right. Before we get on with anything else, I think we should start talking about the latest in aviation news. Stand by for news. Okay, let's start with this. Uh, there was a mid-air collision of two airplanes near the Soldotna Airport on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska near Anchorage on Friday of last week, killing seven people, including a Kenai lawmaker. A single-engine de Havilland DHC-2 Beaver was involved in the crash, which carried six people. Um, 57-year-old pilot Gregory Bell of Soldotna, 40-year-old guide David Rogers of Kansas, and South Carolina residents Caleb Hulsey, Heather Hulsey, McKay Hulsey, and Kirsten Wright, according to the Alaska State Troopers. The only person in the other plane, a single-engine Piper PA-12, was 63-year-old State Representative Gary Knopp of Kenai. Troopers and federal aviation officials said six people were confirmed dead at the scene while one person died on the way to the Central Peninsula Hospital in an ambulance. The federal NTSB was recovering the two planes and the NTSB Alaska chief Clint Johnson said 
Well, that's what he said Saturday. The agency hoped to be finished with recovery efforts by the end of Saturday, and the goal is to bring the two planes to a secured location in the Wasilla area. By the way, this is from a local news outlet, um, ADN.com, whatever that stands for. So, um, High Adventure Air Charter on Friday posted a message on its website confirming that one of its aircraft was involved in the crash. At this time, High Adventure Air is working to support the families involved and is working with the National Transportation Safety Board, who is investigating the the accident. Our thoughts and prayers are with all of the families involved in this tragic accident. Bell, the Beaver's pilot, was part of a family that owns and operates High Adventure Air Charter. Based on Longmere Lake in Soldotna, the business offers fishing, hunting, bear viewing, and glacier tour trips, as well as custom charters. The charter plane, which was equipped with floats, took off from Longmere Lake and was headed to the west side of Cook Inlet. The Piper PA-12 was equipped with wheels and took off from the Soldotna Airport, but investigators do not know yet where it was headed. Exactly. Can I interrupt yeah. you for a second? Are there yeah. any Pipers that aren't equipped with wheels? The ones that have floats, apparently. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. that kind of struck got me as me odd. There. Got me <laughs> Kind of struck me as odd. It was like, well, most Pipers, I think that's a, a fair statement. Most Pipers have wheels. Uh, but apparently because the uh, the Beaver was a float-equipped uh, float Beaver, uh, they felt like they had to put that make that point. Okay. I guess I could have just said that it took off from the Soldatna airport, not the lake. But anyway, witnesses described the midair collision, which they say produced a tooth rattling sound and sent debris flying. Alaska state troopers said they began getting reports of the crash two miles northeast of Soldatna's airport just before 8.30 in the morning on Friday. Most of the wreckage landed about 200 yards from the road, which was closed briefly due to safety concerns and debris or debris. National Weather Service reports from the Soldatna Airport for Friday morning showed clear visibility with broken clouds at 10,000 and 4,500 feet. Uh, so anyway, they're still investigating why the uh, collision occurred, and uh, that's all they have. So uh, It's amazing how often uh, you get close to another aircraft because you haven't spotted them. And uh, most of these occasions are just give everyone a bit of a fright when you get very close aboard. Uh, the advent of um, ADSB for everybody is going to help these situations. But quite honestly, um, the best thing to do is uh, just keep your head out of the cockpit, use the Mark One eyeball. Mm-hmm. But of course, that has its limitations. Uh, we all know that, well, perhaps we don't. Um, you know, we were uh, really through uh, our evolution, uh, our sensory systems, our eyes already designed to pick up moving targets. And uh, if you're on a collision course with someone, they don't actually move relative to you because you're on a collision course. If they moved, then you'd easily tell that they were either going to go in front of you, behind you, above you, or below you, or whatever. Uh, So something that's completely stationary in your windshield, uh, perhaps just a dot initially, is actually not very easy, particularly for your peripheral vision, to uh, pick up. It's only as it starts to move one direction or another that your uh, attention is attracted to it. You can see it if you look directly at it with the the highest acuity portion of your eye, which 
for those of you who don't know, it's about the size of your fist held at arm's length. It's not a very big piece of your eye, so which is why it's important to scan the sky uh, all the time, um, particularly in the areas when you are vulnerable uh, to uh, a collision. So you're really talking about 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Uh, but, you know, it is possible people to creep up from behind you, so take a look out there occasionally. Uh, and to do so in sectors and to do so with discipline so that uh, you cover the entire sky. Uh, and bear in mind that it's very easy if you're looking into an empty sky for your eyes to focus backwards towards you uh, and no longer be stretched out at infinity, so there's less chance of you actually seeing the thing you're looking for. If you find yourself staring at the windshield, you've been looking out the window too long. Glance out at something that's more than about 30 or 40 feet from you, usually the ground or a cloud or something, and then restart your scan. But um, I, I know it's, it's very hard when you're busy, uh, particularly if you're the only person in an aircraft, uh, to keep that uh, rigorous lookout going. And, um, you know, these things sadly happen, particularly when you're in a busy environment approaching an airport. Yep. Uh, someone in the chat room was asking, you know, did these airplanes have TCAS? And I would say probably neither of them did, although with ADS-B, I'm not sure whether one or both of the airplanes were equipped with it. Um, they do have something similar to TCAS. I think it's another acronym um and i can't recall exactly uh is it taws or something like that t-a-w-s or i don't know uh, but it's like a different type of system uh using data coming in from um well in and out of adsb where you can have on a display other aircraft in your area and uh that's definitely helpful as well i'm just um i worry that we kind of start relying too much on these systems uh, because there are times when the TCAS display doesn't show everybody that is out there. And so it's still very important for uh, aviators to be scanning outside looking because they still do equip airplanes with windows uh, to look out of in front of the airplane. So uh, there's a reason for that. So we should be out there looking at all times when we can, you know, for IMC or uh, instrument meteorological conditions, sometimes, you know, that's kind of a, a moot point because you can't really see much, but on a, on a nice clear day or even a marginal day, we still are required as captain Nick just mentioned to be clearing for aircraft. Absolutely. And of course, uh, we, we are well aware of the dangers of too much automation and too much gear in the aircraft. That can be a great distraction. Mm -hmm. But also when everyone has ADSB, and eventually I think it'll be a requirement for everybody in most civilized countries to uh, have ADSB. Oh, then um, we won't have it here in the US then. <laughs> you're you're starting off i think you did very well <laughs> Thank you. um but people will start relying on it rather than using their eyes so they'll just glance down and they'll say well yeah. if you're not on my screen uh, uh you, you don't exist which is just you know just so dangerous so it's just like automation you've got it you know you, yeah you, you kind of start relying upon it becoming dependent upon it yeah, and uh, you, that can be unsafe. you'll hit the bloke that has is us his is us or uh is just not displaying for yeah. one reason or another so so wait a minute are you saying us as in united states or us as in unserviceable or both both, <laughs> both definitely okay thank you Broke. well 
hopefully we'll, uh, the NTSB will be able to determine exactly what happened in this incident. In the uh, meanwhile, yeah. though, I think we'll move on sure. to the uh, second news item, which is... Oh, another bit of lookout required. Yeah, like the guy that's driving this fuel truck. <laughs> yeah. He should have been looking where he was going. <laughs> we, we have a picture of the fuel truck here, and it uh, doesn't look good. They said that uh, the driver of the fuel truck was was injured. doesn't say, but I don't think they had to take him to the hospital, so he wasn't too badly injured, I guess. Uh, the resumption, this is from uh, RT.com. Uh, the resumption of international flights in Russia after the four-month hiatus caused by the COVID-19 pandemic has been marred by an accident at Moscow's Shremetyo. airport. Thank you, Controller Vlad. For... You'll be able to say on your own before too long. No, probably not. Shremetyo. Shremetyo. Where a fuel truck collided with an Airbus A321. The truck Why crashed. do they pick on the Airbuses? It's not fair. It's so mean. I'm not sure I can answer that question. The truck crashed into a plane belonging to a national flag carrier, Aeroflot, early on Saturday. It happened on a remote parking lot, and no crew or passengers were on board the Airbus, which was preparing for a flight to the Black Sea Resort of Sochi. Um, airport's press service said... <laughs> Both the plane and the truck suffered damage in the collision. Photos and videos from the scene published by RT's Ruptly Video Agency and other outlets showed a large crack in the nose section of the aircraft priced at over $118 million. Was the crack priced at $118 million or the <laughs> airplane? expensive crack. I think that's the whole airplane. Okay. But, uh, don't hold me to that. Okay. Uh, the service vehicle had its cockpit smashed. The driver was hurt, but his injuries didn't require hospitalization as he was treated on site. And then he was beaten with a big stick. <laughs> yes. The uh, incident, I, I added that part. Uh, the incident, which has not affected the airport's operations, is now being investigated. Uh, okay, so pretty much that's it for this news item. Anything to well, say? I, uh, I did notice on the cockpit, it's got S. Richter. Is that the Richter scale? <laughs> yeah, I bet it was pretty high on that Richter scale. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it looks at least a seven. Yeah, at least a seven. Probably greater in the uh, fuel truck than in the <laughs> Airbus. Yes, <I> <laughs> yes. Perhaps he was a very little driver. It was, or he had a very strong head. Off the, the charts in that little fuel truck. Yeah. All right. Uh, always a wise guy, you. Nah. Um, so we talked about this shortly after it happened uh, last August 2019. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., who is a uh, NASCAR race car driver and um, race uh, commentator, uh, he was in his uh, private jet as a passenger with his wife and his daughter, uh, thank you, uh, Mailplane app. Um, this is not a good time for you to tell me there's a new update and if I want to install it. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, back to the uh, news. Uh, he was with his uh, wife and his daughter and uh, two pilots employed by um, his company. And they were flying from is it Statesboro? Let's see, Steph should be here. She's familiar with all these places in um, North Carolina. But uh, 
wherever um, Junior's based, uh, somewhere in North Carolina, and they were making a very short trip from there up to um, Elizabethton um, in Tennessee. And I guess he was going up there to cover the uh, uh, coverage of the Bristol uh, race uh, in the uh, Tri-Cities area of, of northeastern Tennessee. And the flight was filed as a VFR flight, visual flight rules. And they didn't uh, file for um, or ask for flight following services. So they were all on their own. Again, it was a very short flight. Um, I think less than 20 minutes from takeoff to landing. And they ended up uh, landing on the Elizabethton runway about halfway down. They hit very hard on the first touchdown and then it bounced. Let's see, according to a written statement from pilot Jeff Melton, the plane's approach was maybe a little fast, but the other pilot, Richard Pope, said he was carrying extra speed because the airplane slows down so easy. Well, in this case, it didn't slow down so easy. <laughs> um, let's see, Pope, the uh, Richard Pope told the NTSB investigators that um, the initial touchdown just past the runway's numbers was pretty hard. Plane came back up. Okay, I was wrong. Uh, they touched down just in, in the touchdown zone, but it was a very hard touchdown. The plane came back up off the runway. During that time, thrust reversers were applied before the plane bounced off the runway a second time. Uh, Melton said that at that point, they decided to attempt a go-around, but the power never comes after they, that was a quote, after they increased thrust to abort the landing. Melton did not try to use the emergency thrust reverser stow switches during the attempt. After the second bounce, the plane climbed to about 25 feet before the pilots, realizing there was not a not available thrust to perform a go-around, tried to land the plane on what runway was left. The third touchdown occurred about halfway down the airport's 4,500-foot-long runway, while the NTSB has uh, initially reported that the third touchdown occurred within about 1,000 feet of the runway remaining. The aircraft's flight computer stated that the plane needed about 3,000 feet for landing, so it was definitely something that was a you know, I was going to say, maneuver. that rather goes against their estimation that the airplane stops pretty quick. I mean, that yeah. really gives you 1,500 foot of spare runway. I'm going, that's not a great deal. That's really not. Well, but apparently it's not an unusual thing for um, biz jets, um, at least over here in the U.S. And I, interestingly, on my walk, was it yesterday morning? I was listening to the latest episode of Opposing Bases, um, Air Talk. Um, so what's their their uh, little motto? Air Talk Radio or something like that. Anyway, um, the uh, hosts of the show, A, G, and R, H, are both pilots and they're both air traffic controllers. And so it's good stuff if you're out there want to learn about uh, air traffic control services, especially um, with a U.S. perspective. And they were talking about, um, I, I forgot what the subject was about, but they were talking about a, a citation latitude, which I believe this is the uh, type of airplane involved in this accident, um, that landed and basically you know, turned off at the very first place they could turn off the runway. And it would kind of uh, caught them off guard uh, because it, it was such a, a quick landing roll or a very short landing roll. So apparently it does have a reputation for being uh, a, a pretty good performer when it comes okay. to uh, slowing down pretty fast. But, you know, if you, if you add a whole bunch of energy to a jet 
you know, even the ones that have good uh, stopping performance will still have issues as yeah. this one did. <laughs> of course, this one was exacerbated by the fact that it was a big bounce, actually two big bounces. Um, anyway, so as I mentioned on the second or between the first and second bounce, they deployed the thrust reversers. And I think, I think it's, it's true for all types of operators out there. I know at, uh, for sure in the airlines that once you deploy your thrust reversers during the landing sequence, that's it. You know, you're, you're kind of committed now to keeping the airplane on the ground unless it's just one of those situations where there's nothing else for you to do, like a big earthquake and half the runway kind of falls into the earth. <laughs> that would be a situation <laughs> yeah. where you'd have to, but otherwise, <laughs> you know, if the reversers are out, that's it. You got to deal with it now. You got to get the airplane stopped on the ground. Uh, so uh, I think they must have panicked uh, there once the, uh, they were on their third bounce and realized that uh, the runway was disappearing quickly uh, before their eyes. Um, so as we know, the uh, airplane overran the runway, went through some chain link fencing and uh, came to a stop on a road near the airport on the far side of the runway. And, uh, the airplane was on fire, um, in the lavatory and, um, the tail and the, there were some issues with, um, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Trying to get the overwing exit open. And I was mentioning to Nick, we were talking about this before we actually started the recording today, that, uh, if you look at some of the pictures, which we'll have in the show notes here at part of the docket, uh, the uh, chain link fence is wrapped very tightly around the fuselage right around that area where the uh, overwing exits are. So I can kind of see why it was almost impossible or it was impossible to get those opened up. Uh, they attempted initially to get the front left door, the main uh, cabin door open, and they weren't successful right away. And then with some more effort and kicking, they were finally able to get the uh, door to come open Um in the space of, I think they said in their, uh, one of their interviews that uh, it was about the size of an oven. That was right there. Earnhardt told the uh, pilot to try the main door, which they couldn't open. Initially, Melton was able to force the main door open enough for everyone to escape. Earnhardt said that the opening was about the size of an oven. A small oven or a large oven? I don't know. But uh, I don't know, but the airplane looked like it turned into an oven because uh, they, they were lucky not to have been trapped in there. Yes. So they all got out safely. No, um, no major injuries, no loss of life. And, um, they're still looking into it. So this is, this is one of the first steps in an NTSB investigation. They gather interviews and other data about the uh, flight or the incident or accident. And then they open a docket, uh, which usually is, usually means that it won't be long before the, uh, primary or preliminary report um, is is put out there. So, so bearing in mind there appears to be no uh, mechanical issues with the aircraft. What do you think they'll be no. putting it down to? I would say pilot error, um, an unstabilized approach. I'm guessing, mm. and they continued with it, and then they yeah. tried to go around out of it, and that uh, didn't work. Apparently, uh, neither pilot reported having performed an aborted or bolt landing. Uh, 
uh, as uh, attempted during the flight or having performed one during simulator training. So it just shows the hmm. importance of uh, ticking all those boxes uh, whenever you get in the simulator. It's not just instrument flying and go around. So there's all sorts of things that are important to check. Okay. Let's see, just an update, see what's going on with uh, Steph. Is she having some issues with her computer? <laughs> There's a picture oh, of her screen. About nine minutes remaining, it says on her screen. Uh, it looks like her uh, computer has decided to do some kind of a, um, she must have the automatic up, or automated updates clicked. So that's a, that's selected. An, a, a Mac. I know, but I guess maybe there's an yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, operating system update or something. Well, she'll be with us soon anyway. Yeah, at some point. We'll just keep on going without you. Be that way, Steph. <laughs> um, Ute Air Cargo Antonov AN-74 at Gao? Gao? Goa? No, Goa? it's not Goa. G-A-O. Uh, in Mali, uh, let's see, this, let me read from uh, Simon Ratsky's um, Aviation Herald article about this accident. Um, let's see, this happened on the 3rd of August, which was just uh, a couple of days ago. Cargo um, only Antonov AN-74 on behalf and in colors of United Nations M-I-N-U-S-M-A. So I looked that up. I thought, I don't know what that is. It's the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali. Oh, my God. Now, would you really? please tell me, now look at all those words and see how that, how does that match up with M-I-N-U-S-M-A? I don't see, I don't, I don't see it at all. I'm very confused. Uh, anyway, it was the. Likewise, uh, I wonder if it's uh, a French version or something. Oh, it could be. Anyway, uh, they were uh, operating the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali. Uh, registration Romeo Alpha 74044, performing flight 52P from Bamako to Gao in Mali with four passengers, seven crew, when they went past the runway while landing at uh, about 10:15 local time coming to a stop on soft ground with all gear collapsed and nose and belly substantially damaged one occupant received serious injuries 10 occupants minor injuries and the aircraft sustained substantial damage locals reported the aircraft performed a forced landing well i don't know how the locals would know that they performed a forced landing they just screwed up the landing apparently uh oh Minusma reported the aircraft arrived from Bamako, uh, made a difficult landing. <laughs> I think if you look at the um, METAR at the time, you'll see why they characterized it as a difficult landing. Uh, the weather wasn't great. Um, looks like a heavy thunderstorm or thunder showers were going on at the time. And well, the winds yeah. were pretty high and variable. Basically, it was pretty flooded, didn't it? It does look very flooded. I'm not sure if that is a prepared runway or a dirt runway. It kind of looks like it'd be a dirt. Of course, that we're seeing it off the runway, so who knows? Yeah, that's um, true. This is one of those uh, amazing aircraft that has the engines high up on a high wing, and it used a, uses a great deal of its jet E-flux to boost the lift performance of the wing at low speed. 
it's a, a very interesting design. As long as the engines keep going, everything's fine and beautiful. But if you stop blowing over the wings, uh, you can suffer a substantial loss of lift. Uh, it is an interesting uh, concept. Uh, the um, was it Boeing had a similar one? I think only an experimental thing. Yeah, I think one it of the like, um, it was like a YF something or other. I think it was one of the candidates for the C seventeen um, program or what came to be the C-17. I'm not sure. Or maybe it was a different one. But uh, yeah, they did have an airplane that looked very much like this with the engines mounted uh, high up on the wing and using the blown uh, whatever um, technology to add lift from the uh, exhaust of the engines. Uh, perhaps somebody in the in the show notes, I mean, in, <laughs> in the show notes, no, the chat room, <laughs> um, the live audience can uh, chime in with uh, what I'm trying to recall Although that may be yeah. impossible to try to, you know, come up with what I'm trying to recall. But uh, anyway, a picture of this uh, in the show notes and looks like at least a good quarter of the um, bottom of the airplane is kind of rubbed yeah. away, gone or buried below the mud. Sadly, not only was the aircraft substantially damaged, but the pilot was. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um I guess our best wishes to uh, him. Yes. It's always a bit sad when you're seeing a, a UN aircraft or someone who's doing uh, these kind of uh, very important um, missions uh, because they often have to go into some pretty dodgy places uh, and it's difficult flying. So uh, uh, well, I hope they uh, do all right. Micah thinks that what I'm trying to recall or what we're trying to recall is the YC-15. And it is, um, at, well, yeah, the YC-15 kind of looks like um, like a BA-146 or a C, C... Yeah, that's not quite the same I don't same think that's the one we were thing, thinking of, Micah. Uh, Micah. Those are underslung yeah. um, jet engines. Uh, but there was clearly, maybe it was the YC-14, perhaps. Let's see. Let me click on that one. Yes, that's it. You were one off, Micah. It's the YC-14. And uh, if you do a quick search on that, you'll see that uh, that airplane looks very similar. Here, I might as well just share there the screen go. so people can see it. Yeah, absolutely. So which one came first, I wonder? Did we, uh, did the, probably did Antonov copy the American well, I'm what? sure that we copied the Russian uh, airplane because that's usually the way it works. <laughs> that would be a first time. <laughs> anyway, so um, there you go. Let's get back to safety. Okay, so we'll try to figure out exactly what happened here, but it looks like they tried to land in very poor conditions at the uh, airport. Um. This is an interesting one. There's a, uh, this incident again from the Aviation Herald, a United Boeing 787-10 or 10, or, you know, the, the big version of the uh, 787, uh, registration November 16009, performing flight 57 from Newark, New Jersey to Paris, Charles de Gaulle was on final approach to Paris's runway 09 left when tower cleared the aircraft to land on 09 right. The crew read back the clearance and performed a swingover 
to runway nine right or what we would normally call <laughs> a sidestep maneuver over to the oh i like calling parallel. it a leg over a leg over <laughs> a high leg over okay and let's see an easy jet europe Airbus A320-200 registration, Oscar Echo, India, Juliet, Foxtrot, performing flight 3955 from Paris to Malaga or Malaga, Spain, have been cleared to line up on nine right and wait, uh, recognized the developing situation and reported the conflict on radio. They were probably doing what good pilots should do, uh, keeping aware of the situation around them and thought, wait a minute. We were just told to line up on nine right, but I could have sworn they just told that United 787 to land on nine right. What's going on? Maybe we should stop short of the runway and sort this out. Uh, the Boeing uh, 787 initiated a go around from about 260 feet above ground level, resolving the conflict. The United 787 landed safely about 20 minutes later. The EasyJet A320 departed about five minutes later. The French BEA rated the occurrence a serious incident, landing clearance on an occupied runway, and opened an investigation. So I don't know. We're not clear from this bit of information here whether the EasyJet 320 was actually on the runway or uh, they, they could have been, and they just were listening to the radio, and listening to... Um, instructions and conversation going on that doesn't deal specifically with their flight, which is again, a very good way to operate. So you can kind of have that, that uh, spatial or situational awareness of what's happening around you. And maybe one or both thought, wait a minute, they just told that United to land on our runway. What's going on here? So looks like it was all sorted out. Good work by the EasyJet crew for uh, situ situational yep. awareness. Hats off to them. Well yeah. done guys. Uh, it's lucky to a certain extent that uh, this was um, two aircraft from uh, English-speaking nations, so United and uh, EasyJet. Um, so the controller was speaking in presumably in English to them both, whereas if it had been an Air France aircraft, there is a possibility that he might have slipped into French. That would not be and, good. Uh, uh, that is exactly, and it's a point you, you make frequently, Jeff. How mm -hmm. important it is, even though local uh, rules may legally allow controllers and pilots to speak in their nation's language, uh, how much it removes from the situation awareness of everyone else who isn't able to understand their language, and how important it is that we all stick to the standard IKO use of English. Exactly. Uh, now, some people would say, well, okay, who's at fault here? Um, it sounds like, we're, again, based on the little bit of information we have on this, um, I'm thinking that maybe the controllers really didn't mean for the United flight to sidestep from the left runway to the right runway, although people have mentioned in the comments that, well, the, the terminal for United would be, it would be more convenient for them to land on the right rather than the left, but I'm thinking that the controller really didn't intend for them to do that. And um, perhaps it may have been a good idea for the United crew to say, are you sure, you know, you want us to sidestep from the runway we were initially approaching and expecting to land on and go instead over to this other one, uh, especially with the fact that you've already cleared another run, uh, another flight onto our runway. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think that the easy jet pilots were 
paying more attention than the United pilots in this instance. Um, you know, they've been flying probably quite some time uh, before yeah, this, they so they're kind of tired. Quite a long flight, and it right, uh, yeah. But it probably wouldn't um, have hurted to say, or hurted. It probably, <laughs> it's like I've been flying all night long. Uh, it probably wouldn't have or couldn't have hurt to just clarify. Just, are you sure? You know, because that doesn't sound like it's a it's a common thing. I don't know. Is it a common well, thing? Well, normally there's a certain amount of terminology involved with a sidestep. And mm-hmm. the first question you usually asked is, can you accept one? Mm-hmm. Because uh, you can only sidestep with enough height to get across to the other runway uh, set yourself up and still be within your stabilized approach criteria. So um, that's the normal question. Uh, you happy to sidestep onto zero nine right? Uh, affirmative, Roger. You're now cleared sidestep to zero nine right, uh, uh, and you get a new landing clearance for that uh, runway. If you just are expecting the left and you get a landing clearance for the right, just out of the blue. I wouldn't necessarily assume that was a sidestep situation. I would just think, if the guy's just given me the right runway or not, mm-hmm. and that that would send up a things bubble. I hope in most pilots' heads. I agree. I agree. I think that may have been what happened, and they, you know, read back the clearance to land on nine right. But again, maybe the controller didn't realize what he was saying and didn't really kind of uh, understand what the United flight was reading back to him yeah. or to her. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully we'll find out a little bit more information about this. Sadly, probably not. Uh, but uh, again, good heads up by the easy debt crew and what else we'll to say? We'll probably get just... lots of more information, but it'll all be in French. Yes. So <laughs> we'll, uh, then I know exactly who to give it to. <laughs> Look at that. She got right it on going. cue from her lakeside home in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot, and French-to-English translator, Dr. Steph. I wouldn't uh, count on the quality of those translations. <laughs> Definitely sketchy at best. So. We're not saying how good uh, they'll be, but, you know. Well, I mean, I can Better than we can do, but, right? Anyway, sorry for my tardiness again for like ah. the third or fourth week in a row, but I'm, I'm here. I made hey, it. Hey, yeah. as we always say, Steph, feel, take what we can get from you. I feel like, yeah, okay, thanks, I think. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I like I'm at the very end of a long flight here, so <laughs> long day. caffeine and uh, it's a long week already. Oh, it's I'm only sorry. Wednesday. It's all right. I'm here now. Things are better. It's hump day, right? Yeah. Guess what day it is? <laughs> so uh, excellent. Well, we uh, look forward to hearing about um, what's been going on with you here in a few minutes. But uh, in the meanwhile, I think we'll go ahead and finish up our news, if that's all right with sure. you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, anything else to say regarding the um, uh, the ATC? Of course, it even says in this. Um, headline from Simon that it was an ATC error. So it, I don't think that they intended for the United flight to do the sidestep maneuver. But again, as we said, it probably wouldn't have hurt if uh, the United crew had said, are you sure you want us to do that? Then we weren't expecting that anyway. And Simon, uh, you know, his wonderful uh, news, aviation news source, um, the aviation Herald, uh, we use it a lot because it's good stuff. It's good, uh, solid 
information uh, that he gathers and presents. And if you're out there and you use it as well, uh, head over to the Aviation Herald, avherald.com, and and uh, donate some money to his cause. It's something that he's doing on his own. It's, he's not a big company, not making a lot of money as far as I know. So anywho, um, he has a sense of humor, even though he is Austrian. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I, I would imagine Austrians have great senses of humor. Um, and, they just keep them well hidden. Yes. <laughs> But his his uh, subject line for this particular uh, incident uh, was this. Alkin D228 at Coffee Creek on July 22nd, 2020. Drum roll on touchdown. <laughs> that caught my attention. <laughs> Drum roll on touchdown. What is he talking about? Well, uh, the Alkin Air Dornier DO228 registration C Foxtrot Uniform Charlie November. <laughs> performing a flight from, the bus. <laughs> <laughs> or you could say see no you can't um from whitehorse uh to coffee creek airstrip um in canada let's see yt yukon territory yukon territory thank you steph with seven passengers and two crew touchdown oh you deserve this for that okay thank you um Touchdown at Coffee Creek Airstrip with uh, when the right main gear struck one of the fuel drums on the runway edge, marking the touchdown zone. The fuel drum subsequently struck the right side of the fuselage and the right horizontal stabilizer. The aircraft rolled out with further without further incident. There were no injuries. The aircraft received minor damage. The Canadian TSB reported subsequent to the the occurrence, the fuel drums were were replaced with high visibility plastic cones. Brilliant! And so we fixed it. Never really. Hey, we had this great idea to just use big fuel drums. These big for drums marking yeah, the uh, a bunch zone of fuel drums the up in the way. It's fine. Yeah. That will never I'm, cause a problem. I'm with you, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I like fuel drums. They're great. Yeah. Yeah, but at least they didn't have fuel. Well, I'm assuming they did not have fuel. In <laughs> they them. didn't say, but no. I'm guessing they were used. So I'm thinking this airstrip. It's not an airport, and this airstrip is probably pretty tight. And uh, yeah, um, didn't intend to hit the fuel drum, but I just thought that you know, obviously, when the airplane did hit the drum, it caused it to roll. Hence the drum roll. So very, uh, very funny, uh, <laughs> Simon. A lot of uh, folks in the uh, comment uh, comments uh, on this particular article uh, were were giving him thumbs up. You know, way to go, fanfare of trumpets for Simon. So, so this is the third runway um, deviation that we've had in these short news sections. Oh, today. Right. maybe that's the <laughs> title of the show, huh? Uh, yeah, deviancy. <laughs> well, that's every show. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. And then uh, just added this one at the last minute um, because we just learned this breaking news shortly, uh, short, a short time ago. A Virgin Atlantic files for bankruptcy in the U.S. I'm thinking, wait a minute, Virgin Atlantic is not a U.S. company. How can they file for bankruptcy in the U.S.? Um, this is from CNN Business. Virgin Atlantic has filed for bankruptcy in the United States as it races to finalize a $1.5 billion plan to rescue it from the aviation industry's worst crisis. 
The company, which is based in the UK, filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection in New York on Tuesday, which shelters the U.S. assets of foreign companies undergoing restructuring proceedings in their home country. So uh, looks like they are waiting for some um, for some funding to get them out of this. So they they have not filed for administration over there in the UK, which is, I guess, their form of um, bankruptcy proceedings. Um, they unveiled a 1.2 billion pound or 1.5 billion restructuring deal to keep the airline solvent just days before it resumed passenger flights. The plan has the support of shareholders, including Delta Airlines. I think Delta owns like 49%, a pretty big chunk Correct. of Virgin Atlantic. Uh, U.S. hedge fund Davidson Kempner is providing 150 million pounds in secured financing. Um, let's see. Richard Branson um, of the Virgin Group is contributing 200 million pounds. Uh, we remain confident in the plan, a Virgin Atlantic spokesperson added. And uh, it adds that Virgin Atlantic has already laid off 3,550 staff and closed its base at London's Gatwick Airport as aviation suffers its worst downturn ever because of the coronavirus pandemic. So what do you know about this, uh, Nick? Was it your fault? Well, That's what I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, found, I found out about it um, very much uh, the same way you would have done. I suspect uh, social media was of it and some of the newspapers made some very misleading um headlines concerning this uh, suggesting that the company was uh, filing for bankruptcy which is of course awfully damaging for any company let alone an airline which relies so much on customer confidence to buy tickets for the future uh, and as soon as you destroy that confidence uh, you know the chance of the company recovering uh, become quite damaged as well. So um, the aircraft, the conversion Atlantic is not bankrupt. Uh, it's not going out of business. Uh, chapter 15 is just a mechanism of protection against bankruptcy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's just um, because the company is uh, part owned by Delta, I'm sure this is uh, the reason they want to make sure that uh, the U S assets are protected. Um, and it's just, like they say, part of uh, their financial restructuring system. So please, newspapers, uh, stop. Get it right. Uh, yeah, stop wailing on Virgin Atlantic. They're a, yeah. You know, it's a very viable airline. And, we're, you know, it's, a lot of my friends still work for them. Many have sadly uh, been laid off. Hopefully they'll get their jobs back. But if uh, the press continues to... Uh, come down on Virgin Atlantic, uh, they're going to drive it under just because of the lack of customer confidence. So anything yeah. we can do to counter that, I think, is very valuable. Yes. So we'll yell it from from far to near or whatever the right way to say that is. Uh, Virgin Atlantic is not in bankruptcy. They're not going under. They're going to be fine. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly believe so. Excellent. I'm trying to find something that would be very appropriate to play at this time. Why is it not playing? Ah, oh, that's sad. This saddens me. It's right there. I see the uh, name of the sound file, and it's just not playing for some reason. 
Have you looked at Volume oh, Ten? A back? Sad situation. <laughs> well, that would have been an appropriate one, but uh, no, it was. Uh, I'm not dead I yet. Which one yeah, I knew which one you were looking for. <laughs> oh well. Uh, well. I'm still gonna. No, never mind. Too late. Uh, all right. Well, so uh, I'm sure that Virgin Atlantic is going to be around for some time to come. And and uh, journalists out there, please do your homework and stop saying things that can be very harmful, as Nick said. All right. With that, I think now it is time for us to get to know us. The segment of the show that I enjoy, in, enjoy? That I enjoy the most. <laughs> Gosh. You okay then? What I'm saying. I'm having a stroke, I think. <laughs> the part of the show where we tell you about what has been happening with all of us and uh steph i'd like to start with you sure um yeah gosh busy um lots of work i think i got my uh, final uh, numbers from from my day job from july and it was officially the busiest month i've ever had in terms of patient volume somehow despite a global pandemic so Hmm. Um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it felt like a busy month and it, it definitely was, um, it has not slowed down moving into August. The first three days of this month here back at work have been, wow, just as busy. So trying to just play catch up. Um, I know you kind of mentioned it. I was <laughs> running a little later than I planned to be today because, uh, the computer system yesterday kept kicking me out. Every time I would click on something, it would log me out and I'd have to log back in. So I wasn't being very productive. So I said, the heck with it. And that left me with a lot of paperwork to do today. And I'm still not quite caught up, but I'm caught up on all the stuff that has to be done as of right now. That's good. Yeah. Uh, But I worked pretty much nonstop from about 6.30 this morning until 3.30. I mean, I really Mm -hmm. didn't take a break. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling a little fatigued from that. Still doing a bunch of flying on the weekends, too. So I'm sure that helps with my fatigue levels. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But that's the the fun part of, of life right now, right? So... Um, more parachute, yeah, just, uh, parachuter mm, dropping. Yep. People, yep. Things. More, more skydive flying. Just. Oh, that's probably a better on. way to say it. Skydive. Flying. Skydive fly. Yeah. Jump, uh, jump pilot. Um, yeah. Just working on building hours there, turbine hours. So it's good stuff. Cool. We will continue as long as, as long as I can. Excellent. Yeah. Any big Thank plans, you. uh, for the weekend or anything? Um, yeah, it sounds like, um, I think you had a visitor last weekend. I did. Same visitor will be visiting me this weekend. Okay. Uh, I think he's got a, Colonel Jeff has a layover in Charlotte. Oh, cool. This weekend. So we'll see how, we'll see how that plays out, but Ah, hopefully we'll get together with him and, uh, well, I'm sure (laughs) have a, have a nice meal or at least a nice couple of beers or two. And, uh, yeah, should be good. It'll be a nice end to um, a long work week. So yes. looking forward to that very much. Very good. Nick, have you been playing the uh, the lawn bowls? Uh, not so much. Uh, I've been suffering just a few ailments. Nothing oh. dreadful, just a, a very creaky knee. And um, uh, my last match was played. It was pretty hot. I got dreadfully dehydrated. I might have mentioned uh um, I was due to be on PT UK. Yeah, you mentioned Friday. that last week that you were going to be on uh, yeah, their show Friday. I, I, uh, I finished my match. Uh, match took nearly three and a half hours, 
uh, the temperature was around about 35 degrees centigrade. And uh, I then <laughs> set off home, which should be less than 30 minutes drive, and got stuck in uh, traffic, uh, a lorry fire near the tunnel that I have to go through to get to you know, complete the second half of that short journey. And I was just jammed in this huge traffic jam. Uh, I didn't get home till just before seven, uh, badly dehydrated, run out of uh, anything to drink. So uh, um, I decided to uh, take a night off. <laughs> so sorry about that, Carlos. <laughs> wouldn't have been very good company for uh, that. No, I would wouldn't. I, I, I'd have been, I was gasping. I really wasn't feeling very well, actually. Uh. Um, so, uh, yeah. Apart from that, uh, I've been taking life a little easy and just That's enjoying good. myself. Uh, and um, yeah, not much else to say. Uh, I don't think I've, uh, I'm. I'm going to have a go at uh, Carlos has invited me back on this Friday, so I'm going to have a go uh, then. So to connect all mm, these, they're dots, very forgiving, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, they are. So con- to connect all these dots, you'll see how this all just this world works. Um, on Friday, we talked about. Colonel Jeff had a layover in Atlanta and I had driven down to the Atlanta airport and was waiting for him to make his way from the uh, airport terminal to the layover hotel so I could pick he and his first officer up. And I get this, uh, this um, message that says, I think initially from you, Nick, that said, Hey, anyway, you could fill in for me on PTUK. And I said, uh, (laughs) Nope, because I'm in my car and I'm going to be, you know, meeting up with uh, Colonel Jeff. And, and then I noticed there was a WhatsApp um, request from um, their producer uh, asking if I might be interested. And I said, yeah, I w- I'd love to, but I can't. And uh, so uh, interesting. So Steph's going to be meeting with Colonel Jeff. I was meeting with Colonel Jeff that day. And it all ties into this whole PTUK thing and yeah. why I couldn't do it. So It's a small world, isn't it? It is. It really is. So. But they uh, got somebody at the very last moment to kind of fill in a little bit, a young man who is uh, getting his his uh, private license, I believe. I know he's a glider Excellent. pilot or something. But uh, anyway, it was very interesting. I was wa- I was watching their show while I was waiting in my car for uh, for Jeff to, to turn up. And that kind of segues right on into the fact that I indeed picked up Jeff and David, his first officer, and we, not a lot of places open, especially around the airport for dine-in situations, but we went to the same location where uh, the, the last, or one of my last flights on the uh, Mad Dog, uh, when we got back to Atlanta, we went over to, on uh, Virginia Avenue, um, Mellow Mushroom, and uh, many of the folks listening to the show right now, in fact, probably some of them in the uh, live audience, uh, were there. We had a good time, great pizza, great beer, and great conversation. And uh, so we kind of tried to reenact that, uh, Jeff and his first officer and I, and I have some audio from that. Hey, folks, I'm with uh, someone that you've heard of uh, several times because I think Colonel Jeff has been with the show longer than anybody else. He holds the uh, that title for the uh, number one fan of the APG. Uh, he's been such a big part of our crew and community for so many years and i got a chance to see him again he's getting close to the end of his airline career i don't think it's the end of his aviation career though uh but uh what is it next month i think that uh the 35 days like who's counting uh he is going to be a retired airline captain 
And uh, he is laying over in Atlanta right now, and I drove down from Roswell to the airport to pick up him and his first officer, David, and we are at Mellow Mushroom enjoying a great pizza and a nice beer. And uh, we just wanted to record something to kind of uh, commemorate our meetup today. So we're going to hand the microphone over to Colonel Jeff, the good-looking Captain Jeff. Back to the good-looking Captain Jeff. Oh, he doesn't like that, and I don't like that. Um, it's a um, long time ago, about three and a half years ago, Jeff got an email from me saying it was the last time he was going to get an email from F.O. Jeff. Well, this is the probably last time you're going to hear from Captain Jeff because I won't be a captain in 35 days. I'll be retired again. And uh, not the end of the career. I'm trying to work on a corporate job. So, But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I saw a chance to uh, pick up a trip that was open to come down to Atlanta. So I dropped Jeff a line and said, do you mind? And he said, no. He's in t- I know he was so busy. Wait, just <laughs> so busy. Schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so busy. And so uh, he met us at the hotel. We got in uh, about 1.30, and we're at the Mellow Mushroom having some good beer and great time chatting and catching up. And I'm going to miss this, the flying part. And I was telling Jeff, and was, now that I'm that short, it's a very strange feeling. That's, I mean, I just I can't imagine not being in the cockpit at some point. So, But, uh, yeah, we're having a good time, and it's a great, nice, hot day in hot Atlanta. And I'll hand it over to my co-pilot so he can introduce himself. <laughs> Hello to everybody on the show. This is First Officer David. I appreciate the time out to uh, lunch to have some good pizza and beer with both Jeffs this afternoon. I uh, appreciate the good conversation and the stories that have uh, gone along the way. It sounds like you guys have a great show, and I look forward to listening in sometime. So I'm going to put David on the spot. So we're both Captain Jeff. Who's better looking? Okay. We don't need to go there. I, I have to work with one Captain Jeff tomorrow. <laughs> I knew that if I were him, I would have said, Colonel Jeff, my captain, he is the best looking Captain Jeff ever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, we're having a great time, as you can hear, and... Uh, I don't know. This is probably not the last time that you're going to hear from uh, Colonel Jeff. Uh, I don't know what he's talking about. But anyway, great to see him. Great to meet David. And now back to you, APG crew. Bye. I don't know who that was that said bye. I don't think it was anybody at our table. <laughs> Someone like listening in on what was going on. Apparently. <laughs> It's like a photo. It's like the equivalent of like of like someone putting up bunny ears on someone or like yeah. you know, photo bombing or yeah, audio bombing. That was an audio, audio bombing. Bomb. Right audio there. bomb. Yeah, excellent. Audio bomb. Um, so uh, he's he's um, is he uh, retiring? How is this working? Is he is he actually being made redundant or uh, no? He's uh, no, he's turning sixty five. Yeah, he's he's oh, turning sixty five on the fifth of September, I believe. So this is his yeah, last right, full month okay. of flying. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, right. we so might have more. Birthday. We might have more on that uh, later on. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and, uh, thirty-five. Uh, when we did the last Friday, when we did that uh, recording, um, it was thirty-five days to go. Like, who's counting? Well, apparently, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone else who would count those types of things. 
Yeah. No, I don't no, know anybody no, no, it's yeah, that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's very childish. Only from like a thousand days to go. Periodic <laughs> <laughs> updates. And give totally the wrong impression to your employer. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. What are you saying? You, you <laughs> can't wait really? to well, get I out of here? I hear that badly. Jeez. Anyway, the sad thing was, um, I know I put uh, David on the spot, um, and I, I kind of figured that his it would have been would have been a more definitive, very quick answer. That of course it's the captain that I'm flying with here, Captain Jeff Felmuth. Uh, but uh, sadly. Um, the, oh, but you were the one asking the question. Yeah. And I just paid you know, for that's, the, that's, for the lunch yeah. too. So yeah, yeah, I could see he was yeah, torn. Oh, oh, oh yeah. um, but, uh, anyway, sadly for David, um, he is going to likely be one of the casualties, uh, for furlough at, uh, American Airlines. I can say American airlines because you know, they're not on the show. They're not representing. Ajax. So. No. Huh? Hmm. What? Okay. Whatever. Never mind. Uh, okay. How about, what do we call it then? Ajax? Ajax. Okay. Um, yeah, unfortunately, he'll be one of those, possibly one of those uh, furlough casualties with Ajax. So I, I, In the UK, Ajax is a, a bleach? Yeah, it's it a, is here too. It's a cleaner. Cleaning. Yeah, <laughs> cleaner, it's not a bleach. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. A, a grinding. Like an all-purpose. Thing. Yeah, same <laughs> yeah, thing Heavy-duty cleaner. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, same but thing. They obviously have it their own airline. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, they're well, doing well. Well, I mean, well. Acme makes lots of things too. So. Yes, a lot. Oh, of mainly things. explosive things. Yes, yes. all kinds and of whistles, stuff. yeah, and things like that. Anyway, so um, as uh, the good-looking Captain Jeff mentioned, I don't have a lot going on on my schedule. Uh, I am back into uh, last weekend was uh, singing again at my uh, parish, and uh, so our, our my director has me. Um, heavily booked for all kinds of stuff, uh, singing wise. And I, I'm, uh, enjoying that. Um, and that's pretty much it. Still don't know exactly when I'm going to be going into training for the 717. Um, uh, last word was sometime in October. So until that changes, that's what I'm planning on. And that is it for now. And now Without further ado, I think we'll go ahead and talk about those great, fine folks who contribute their hard-earned dollars toward the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. cup. All right, the coffee fund. That's Jeff Smith, Nashville, Tennessee. Very talented musician. And he's singing the Java Jive APG version because this is the time where we talk about the coffee fund. And we have a couple different ways to contribute to the show. Uh, The first, the uh, classic method. Uh, via PayPal, and you can make a one-time or two-time or a recurring donation there if you'd like. And since the last episode, Randolph Ackerman, Randy, uh, sent in a recurring payment via the Coffee Fund Classic method. And another way to do it is to become a patron of the show or a producer of the show, as we like to say. And we have three new producers um, on Patreon. We have Rich from Sheffield, Rich right there. Uh, is in our live audience. 
Michael Grieg and Steve Sanacore or Sanacore. So, may have mentioned Steve last time, not sure. Seems familiar to me. But uh, anyway, regardless, thank you very much for your fine contributions, folks. And if you're interested in joining this great group of folks, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. We'll wait. (laughs) He's almost ready. There he is. Yes. Zipping up. (laughs) Oh. A little little too late for that, (laughs) but that's okay. doesn't matter. Um, I thought Steph would have picked up the slack. Nah, Steph's a slacker. Yeah. She is. She's right with hello in the the bathroom. So many, what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a slacker. (laughs) Well, I mean, we can all be slackers in our own own way, right? You can be a slacker too. Mm -hmm. Definitely a slack slacker. All right, let's start off with the uh, first item in our feedback, which is from JJ Pittsburgh. He says, hey, all, I just got back from a trip to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio, and I had the opportunity to visit the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, and it was absolutely incredible. Have any of you been able to visit? If not, I highly recommend the trip for any aviation enthusiast. Thanks, JJ. Now, I think a few people have visited. We have to ask the question, JJ. You know, you've just given yourself away. Apparently, you're not listening to our show <laughs> because right about a year ago, well, about a just almost under exactly a, a year, yeah, almost, just, a little bit more than a year ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, on the way, uh, Captain Nick came over from the UK and spent a few days here in the Roswell area at APG HQ. And then we loaded up the truck and then moved to Beverly. No, we loaded up the uh, Honda <laughs> and uh, drove up to Dayton, Ohio, to visit the U.S. Air Force Museum at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And um, it was a great trip. That was a prelude to our uh, making it up to Oshkosh. So, yes, we have a great group of folks, a big group of folks, joined us uh, that Tuesday most of the day, actually, uh, at the uh, museum. Uh, we started off, Nick and I, at uh, Rick, uh, Major Rick Bell's request and invitation to uh, fly the C-17 simulator. And then we oh, headed yeah. to... Oh, uh, I embarrassed myself dreadfully. Oh, I think we both In did. You know what? <laughs> I think, you know, if, if Rick hadn't been there kind of instructing us, I think it, would, it could have been a lot worse. I think we both did <laughs> actually pretty well, I thought. Due to his yeah, uh, instruction. That's true. Except that uh, that airplane doesn't fly like an airplane. No, it doesn't. So, um, I don't know how it flies, but it's it ain't weird. Like an airplane. It's weird. <laughs> Pure but, uh, magic. It is magic. Yes. PFM. PFM. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then we went and headed over to the uh, museum and spent most of the day over there with a big group of folks. And then we ended up. Um, after that, going to a um, a brew pub and uh, having a nice um, nice little dinner and some beers. I guess it was kind of a it was pub. a great day actually and fantastic yeah. museum. Wish I had, we had more time, quite honestly. Yes, it's vast. Me too. That was also the um, trip that uh, we stopped in Lexington and visited the uh, very large um, donk. 
donkey um, com- fan company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Patters, uh, Peterson gave us there. There we go. There we go. Uh, Nick is holding up, a, up there. Oh yeah. I see Fanny too. I don't know where my Fanny mm-hmm. is. Well, I do, but you don't want to see that. Um, <laughs> she's in the other room. The donkey. Yes. The donkey, donkey I'm yes. referring to. Well, JJ, I have not been to the museum, so I will, it is definitely on my to-do list. Yep. That was the first time for me. And I was mm-hmm. in the air force, uh, for mm-hmm. a little over seven years and I never made it there. I'm Slacker. surprised it wasn't a requirement. I know. Should have been. Yeah, they should have given you a week off to go and look look at it. They should have. I even flew the 141 into Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but I guess we just didn't have enough time to go to the museum. Oh. Too busy drinking and carousing, I think. Almost. More important things to do. Yes, mm-hmm. much more important. Priorities. Yes, priorities. you have to have your priorities. But uh, yes, JJ, we have, and uh, we agree with you. It's a great place to visit, and we highly recommend it to anybody out there with an earshot. All right. Uh, Thomas writes this accident. Okay. He's referring to the Atlas air 3591, um, accident report that we covered, um, few episodes ago. Um, he says this accident again shows the need for full employment history and full history of all testing and check ride results. Not everyone wanting to pilot commercial aircraft will be qualified. Simple. Well, Thomas, the NTSB agrees. In fact, um, let me read you some of the findings that they had in their final report of the Atlas 3591 accident. Item 10, had the Federal Aviation Administration met the deadline and complied with requirements for implementing the Pilot Records Database, the PRD, as stated, Section 203 of the Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act of 2010, the PRD would have provided hiring employees relevant information about the first officer's employment history and training performance deficiencies. Um, item 11, the first officer's long history of training performance difficulties and his tendency to respond impulsively and inappropriately when facing uh, or faced with an unexpected event during training scenarios at multiple employers suggest an inability to remain calm during stressful situations. So again, that deals with this whole, you know, transparency and availability of training records and such for airlines that are looking to hire people. Uh, And it goes on um, 15, um, finding number 16, finding number 17, 18, 19. So yeah, uh, they are, (laughs) they agree with you. Um, it's kind of unusual to have this many findings dealing with this one particular area of importance. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven individual findings on the NTSB final report for Atlas 3591. So um, I think they they got the picture. They um, I'm hopefully or we're hoping that the FAA will rapidly um, fix these deficiencies in the um, and the uh, pilot records database and reporting and such. So just thought I'd quickly cover that one. Thank you, Thomas. Mm -hmm. Now (laughs) (laughs) last show. In fact, it was such an important part of our show last week that it became the uh, cover (laughs) art for our show. Uh, so we were talking about, um, we decided this after we stopped broadcasting too. So people didn't really hear our thought process that no. went into this, which made it funnier actually, I think, because we knew this was going to be 
something that would yeah. So the so the artwork is is um, the uh, the plot the uh, the doodle actually wasn't a doodle. It wasn't a doodle at all. It was just. But the Nick thought it was, and he's thinking. <laughs> Well, this doesn't look like a kangaroo at all. <laughs> he was actually very, very correct in that that um, assessment. Assessment, thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, a couple of folks in the um, in our community um, sent us some feedback with the actual um, pics of the doodle, which actually has something that looks exactly like the kangaroo on the back of the Qantas um, livery, uh, their airplanes. And um, that was uh, Michael or Mick, Michelle and Andrew. And uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we had a good chuckle about that. And I, I still thought it was kind of cruel for Steph to kind of just let Nick continue <laughs> on with trying to make heads or tails or kangaroos of the, uh, of the plot. <laughs> I thought he knew I was being um, silly. No? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he knew. Oh, yeah, he knew all along. Yeah. yeah. But uh, even that thing doesn't look like a damn kangaroo. It well, looks like the one on the tail. Of yeah, the it looks plane, very though. much like yeah, the one Yeah, which doesn't look like a kangaroo. Okay, well. but, <laughs> you know, that's a different story. It's a highly stylized <laughs> yeah. version. It's an artist interpretation of a kangaroo. Uh, a flying kangaroo. Fit, yeah, yeah, on the back of it. You know, it looks good on an airplane. Anyway. Yeah. So thank I'm you. I'm sure the Qantas guys love it. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and their white hats. <laughs> so um, let's see who sent this in. Luke uh, Harris uh, down under um, sent in this piece uh, about the last flight of the uh, Qantas 747-400 Victor Hotel Oscar Echo Juliet. And they had it um, being pushed out of the hangar before taking off for the final time for her resting place in Mojave, California. And uh, I'm not going to play the whole video. I'm just going to play an excerpt from the um, proceedings. Wait a minute. I thought I had recorded that. Maybe I expected or planned to play this instead. What happens if I click on this? No, just shows you the picture. I failed because I do I do remember recording this. So hang on, let me see if I can find a little timeout in the timing of the show here while I see if I can find the actual audio that are recorded. Carry on, folks. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, Do you think we're going to have to endure a farewell speech from every captain who flies a 747 on its last flight? Nope. This is actually, I do yes. actually have the audio for that. <laughs> this is something different. So basically what, um, what Luke said in his feedback, I can bind a, a couple of pieces of feedback here in this one, again, all dealing with the Qantas thing. And I'm hoping that this will be it for, <laughs> for our coverage of the uh, Qantas 747 retirement. We'll see. Um, anyway, he gave us a link to a Facebook post and I'm just going to have to put, I'll put the music in and post. How about, um, and, uh, it's video of the uh, Qantas 747 being pushed out of the hangar. And apparently there was some music being played and Luke's, uh, message was okay. When the music started, 
I got tears. And so, uh, and I can see why it's, uh, it, it makes, it's, it's quite emotional to watch this beautiful airplane being pushed out and then hearing this, uh, music being sung by, it sounds like young voices in a, in a choir and orchestra, uh, must've been recorded though. Cause I don't see the actual orchestra and choir in the video itself. So again, um, right now you're going to hear it in the actual audio version of the podcast. We just heard it. Isn't that nice? Very nice. Yes, thank you. That brought a tear to my trouser leg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Um, that's uh, Nick at AirlinePilotGuy.com. It's, I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm offended. Well, I want it to go to Nick, not me. <laughs> How about Nick offends me? Nick, no, it's still going to go to me. It's got to oh, go to okay. Nick. At Somehow Pilot we need guy. that one to go just to right. Yeah, okay. I'll try to fix that. <laughs> um, this from 16Right Media um, Twitter account. A highlight of the Qantas Boeing 747 final farewell yesterday was a poem written by 747 First Officer Jeff Kale. Jeff has logged more than 12,500 hours in the 747's cockpit, and a copy of his poem will be left in the logbook of Victor Hotel Oscar Echo Juliet when she is finally parked in the Mojave Desert. And so I did record that, so let me play a little bit of that poem from First Officer Jeff. Aircraft are just metal constructs assembled on a factory floor. But to the lucky few who fly you, you are always so much more. When you joined us, newly gleaming, latest in a noble line, your majesty and grace impressed us. Now had come your turn to shine. Quickly logging mileage, countless, wishes granted on the way, thrilling everyone who flew you, hoping you would always stay. Ice caps, oceans, deserts, forests, you have overflown the ball, borne your subjects safely onwards, your reputation standing tall. There were times some pilots cursed you, hurts to say it, but it's true. If you humbled them, the reason was because they disrespected you. You have met our every challenge, explorer of the highest skies, surpassing all who came before you, unrivaled in your pilot's eyes. Soon your engines will fall silent. Your time has come to finally rest. As you prepare to go and leave us, we say thank you. You've been the best. Thank you. Thank you. That little bit Some of a very polite applause there. Dramatic the pause there. He kind of turned and looked up at the airplane. You'll have to watch the video to get the full effect. 
I thought he was going to say, and God bless, but he <laughs> didn't. Anyway, uh, so there you go. There's the the last of the Qantas um, 747s leaving. A lot of uh, a lot of drama, a lot of emotion, and uh, staying down under. Uh, we received this from Joe, and he said, "I hope this finds you all well during these unprecedented times." Episode 434 brought up discussion about gaseous oxygen generators and specifically Qantas Flight 30. I've attached a link to an Ask the Pilot forum whose main contributor was the captain of the aforementioned the aforementioned flight. So if anyone has APG syndrome and feels the need to further satiate, satiate their aviation needs, there is much discussion about the QF-30 incident and many other topics. Blue skies and tailwinds, Joe. And he has a link to the Australian Frequent Flyer.com.au. Ask the pilot with the uh, captain of Qantas Flight 30. And since we're already down under. Man, this is like the Australia show. This is. Rather, but mm-hmm. Don't worry. This is the last one, I think, for this show anyway. Um, I mean, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I was just surprised at the amount. I would have, I would have taken Australian offense. feedback we have. I would um, have taken offense to what just what Steph just said. <laughs> I'm offended. I'm offended. Yeah. <laughs> I'm offended. Uh. <laughs> so, this is from, and, and and this this person actually was offended because he, I think he, oh, he sent it is to Foster's. Foster is not Australian beer at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Everybody's really having a lot of fun with this. So this is from Jacob Darlington Brown. And he's the subject of his email to the half British and half Australian who thought Foster's is an Australian beer. It's not. It's just not Australian beer. I'm no expert, but I've drank in pubs in Sydney, uh, Bathurst, Parks. Bathurst. Bathurst, okay. Condabolin, uh, Condabolin, <laughs> don't know, Lake uh, Carjelli, Carjelajo. Just let him, keep, just let him keep going, Nick. Dubbo, Orange, Nabiji, Marambula, Albury, Melbourne, Bourke, uh, Broken Hill, Adelaide, Canberra, Perth, Bungandore, Darwin, Brisbane, Townsville, Bellina, Grafton, Armadale. Man, he's he's had he's drunk a lot in these. A lot of different places. Oh, Kunabarabran. I don't know. Mudgy, Newcastle, Tamworth, Coffs Harbor. They're all they're all laughing, but I don't think they could do any better. Nora, Wollongong, Jerangong, Wagga Wagga, and Woi Woi. And never have I ever seen Foster's on tap. The only two places I've ever seen it on tap were in a pub in Earl's Court in the ever-lovely Blighty and a sleazy, rundown, quote, Australian, unquote, bar in Palermo on the southern Italian island of Sicily. Both places, I'm sure you've noticed, are not in Australia. He put that in capital letters. Your ever-loving and 727-hating Aussie, Jacob Darlington Brown. What do you well, say with a name about like that? Darlington hyphenated Brown, I can't believe he's a real Australian <laughs> in the first place. Well, I did. So I believe find. we have a, re- a retort here. Yes, yeah. you did. You yeah. did have a retort. Do you want me to read this? Yes. 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 I replied, "Hi, Jacob. 
Foster's was founded in Melbourne in 1888 by two American brothers, William and Ralph Foster. There's the problem. New right York. Yeah. <laughs> who, who happened to own a refrigeration plant. Cooling was necessary to brew and store acceptable lagers in Australia's hot climate, unlike the British-style dark ales commonly brewed at the time. The Foster's Group owns Carlton United Breweries, Carlton Black, Carlton Draft, Crown Lager, Melbourne Bitter, NT Draft, Pure Blonde, Reach's Sheaf Stout, Victoria Bitter, Victoria Bitter Gold, Cascade Brewery, Cascade Amber Ale, Cascade Bitter, Cascade Blonde Lager, Cascade Draft, Cascade Export Spout, Stout, Spout. Ha, what am I saying? <laughs> it's another one. Cascade Green, Cascade Lager, Cascade Pale Ale, Cascade Premium Lager, Cascade Premium Light, Cascade Stout. Foster's, well, you don't like Foster's, so we'll leave that bit out. However, the Great Northern, they own the Great Northern Brewery. Company, Grolsch, KB, Matilda Bay Brewing Company, Alpha Pale Ale, Bees Knees, Big Helga, Bohemian Pilsner, uh, Dog Bolter, Dark Larker, Lager, Fat Yak, and the Redback, which I have uh, uh, drunk a very good beer. So I suspect you may have drunk a few Fosters, even if it was by another name. All the best, Nick. So that was the uh, response. Just very to- informative there. <laughs> Now, you know, we haven't received anything back from Jacob. <laughs> so gone quiet. <laughs> I think that maybe he's a, yeah. he's a former listener and community yeah. member of the Airline Pilot Guy show. <laughs> and that was Nick. Was, it, was he a Patreon? I think, I think he is, actually. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, oh, I sh- I, you should give me a list so that and I And we can... just let that 727 hating thing just slide right hey, there, look, Jacob. Like, we, don't... we didn't even address that one. I can so. kowtow a bit more to the Patreon. Oh, no, you don't remember him talking about how he hates no, the do. 727? Yeah, I do. I yeah. Do. Yeah, he, he sent in feedback regarding I, he, that. I just noticed that he had to, like, you know, drop that back in there again. <laughs> yeah, it's he's seething with hate for the 727, <laughs> which is very unusual. Not too many people have a seething hatred of that great airplane, but Jacob Darlington Brown does. Anyway, that was very funny. I hope you don't mind us reading your feedback. I, I'm assuming that you expected that we would, and uh, I enjoyed the retort from Captain Nick. So... We'll just say um, truce for now and for now. move on with, are we now we're about an hour and a half into the show, I guess. Uh, 25. Okay. Um, Rob sent us some feedback. He said, I just wanted to add some feedback to your uh, episode 434, where John wrote in to discuss about how do you deal with these types of captains as first officers. I'm a brand new first officer to the Airbus A320. Wahoo. Go Airbus. I think it means woohoo, but okay. Wahoo. Maybe he just, he's calling himself a Wahoo. Go Airbus. Oh, that's why. Uh, Nick, back me up here. I'm backing you up, mate. Don't worry. And just logged my first 100 hours on type. I'm so new that the shop tags are still on some of my pilot shirts. So I guess that means I'm very new. Coming from a medical background, a paramedic working for the UK's NHS Ambulance Service, I have to say that the topic of CRM during my entire airline training has been phenomenal. I wish other industries would recognize the importance of CRM in all walks of life, and these are certainly skills I wish I knew more about when working as a paramedic. 
Pilots are frequently marked across the IATA pilot competencies in their simulator checks. And so to make a successful career out of flying, I'm amazed how airline recruitment focused so much on the personal skills of a person rather than your ability to fly. That's important, but at the end of the day, your flying skills can be polished by the airline's training team. Interviews mainly focus on the non-technical CRM skills. It's because of this, I haven't come across any particular bad nuts in the flight crews. It shows testament to the level of CRM training across all flight training, and I hope it continues for many years to come. Uh, We've all heard of the dreadful incident of the two 747s uh, runway collision at Tenerife, but I wanted to send you this link that I came across during my training. It's a great medical aviation crossover. It's a video from a UK airline pilot regarding an unfortunate series of events that led to the death of his wife during a routine clinical operation. On investigation, it appeared that this uh, all could have been avoided with better CRM in the clinical environment. Dr. Steph, have you witnessed similar? There was a point in the video when the nurses knew exactly what emergency procedure needed to be done, but didn't speak up to the doctors slash surgeons. When highly intensive events happen, it's very easy to get too focused on one thing, intubating the patient's airway in this example, when actually the lower clinical graded staff noticed that a surgical emergency airway needed inserting. They even gathered the necessary equipment, but no one spoke up. It's really Uh, It's a really interesting watch, and I wondered if you'd post this in your feedback for everyone to view. It goes to show that CRM is so important in any industry, not just aviation. And then it gives us a link to this YouTube recreation of the tragic um, procedure that went bad. Within the airline that I work for, British Acme, We have a four-step advocacy and intervention process. If you think the other flight crew member isn't doing something correctly or has missed something, here's a great four-step procedure. For this example, let's assume we are a first officer and the captain flying is intercepting the ILS localizer, but the aircraft is going faster than we think it should be. Step one, hint and tip. Hey, captain, what do you think about our speed? Step two, tell them what's wrong. Captain, I think we're going a bit too fast here. Step three, tell them what to do. Captain, we need to decrease our speed back to 180 knots. Step four, do it for them. I have control. Reduce the speed yourself. And step five, captain to the first officer, you're fired. No, I'm just kidding. I added that last step. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a great little four-step process that helps solve differences in the cockpit really well. Much better than jumping straight to step four, although perhaps if the terrain alerts uh, sounds, there's no initial response from the pilot flying, then you can jump straight to step four. Does Acme Airlines have anything similar or other steps of intervention that we could learn from? Uh, Looking forward to your discussion and response. Blue skies, tailwinds, and remember those country-specific COVID PAs. Rob, from another part of the English countryside. And... uh, Um, I don't recall having these kind of deliberate steps, uh, as far as handling a situation such as this hypothetical. No, unless I was asleep in the classroom at the time. Well, which it's possible. (laughs) Possibilities. No, anyway. Yeah. He, you know, he asked if I witnessed similar. Yeah. This is, this is big in a lot of different industries. My day job included, um, you know, just trying to work on that. Um, I would, what did Nick call it last week? That power gradient or the the um yes the uh, 
steep authority gradient. Authority gradient. Yeah. So where there's an authority gradient where there's, you know, one person who's in charge or who's maybe they're more responsible for what's going on in terms of the actual procedure, proceedings, whatever it is. So, you know, in case of flying, you have your pilot in command, but, you know, you have your first officer, your co-pilot there, who's also trained, qualified, capable, um, you know, there's shared responsibility there in terms of the flying duties. So, um, yeah, you want to minimize those types of authority power gradients when there's shared responsibility and a need to speak up and, you know, let someone know if there's something going on that should not be going on, or if there's something that's not correct about the the environment, say, hey, um, you know, what do you think about this? Um, oh my gosh, <laughs> what are you doing? Stop it. <laughs> um, sorry, if you're listening to the audio and I was distracted <laughs> by stuff that someone's putting Nick up on the screen. Nick is playing with the uh, overlays. Nick is playing with overlays. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what you want to do, I mean, you want to have... Uh, we talk about this in medicine too. You want to have kind of a non-threatening way for someone who's um, perhaps lower on that authority gradient to be able to speak up and, and mention when something doesn't seem right, you know, Hey, you know, did you mean to, and in my case, was, were we doing the injection here on both sides or just one side or what, you know, just say it out loud because there's, there's no harm in saying it. Um, you know, and in fact, that's something that I try and do with folks that are working with me if you see something unusual going on, so say I'm focused on whatever it is that I'm doing and something else is happening in the meantime that I need to be aware of, don't assume that I see it. You know, if I'm, because like he he mentioned, you know, it's easy to become focused on the most important thing at that moment or what your brain perceives to be as the most important thing. So um, yeah, just don't let that that get away from you and, and make sure that you, whatever your role is. So if you're captain, first officer, you know, do what you can to make those interactions friendly and amicable and non-threatening and just easy communication. Yep. Chris in the uh, live audience says, Hey chief, I might be wrong, but I think we're flying into a mountain. It's <laughs> like the, uh, it's like the car cartoon where it's like, yeah. Hey, how'd that, how'd the goat get up yeah, here? What do you, what do you figure uh, a goat's doing way up here in the clouds? <laughs> this is mountain goat doing up here in the clouds. Yeah. Give me a little granite. Not good. Yes. No. Um, but did yeah, you, it's, it's hap- sorry, go ahead. Did you have a chance to uh, watch the, uh, the video? I actually have not watched this video yet. Oh, I've it's, super it's busy. like, it was like cringing watching it. Cause anything to do with medical stuff is like, but uh, oh, you could huh. see the, uh, the nurses bringing in the, 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 the tray with a trach, um, all, you know, set up just to, ready to go, ready to go. They and see. they kind of just looked at, and one of the uh, nurses said that she had already called the, um, um, intensive care unit to get a bed mm-hmm. ready. And mm-hmm. they all kind of looked at her like, what are you talking about? What? Why? Aren't you overreacting? So, but it turns this, out that this patient died because mm-hmm. they, they got so focused on, you know, intubating her and it wasn't working out. And she just started turning blue and uh, her oxygen went down to 40 and stayed there for like 25 minutes, I think. So, but, but good. you know, going back to whatever field you're in, you know, Think about, you know, if you're if you're focused on something very specific in that moment, or if you're in a challenging or stressful situation, you know, your your peripheral vision tends to narrow and focus in on what it is. Um, and if you're not the one who's in charge of managing, you know, 
not the primary manager of that stressful situation, if you have a chance to step back, kind of look at the big picture. Um, and if, if you have multiple people in the environment who can help you out with that, you should be able and willing to take that information on board and you should encourage them to do so. So, yeah. Good stuff. CRM is really as uh, Rob and Steph just mentioned is something that is applicable in many, many different fields and in life in general, actually. So, and I would just say, don't, don't be afraid to speak up. You know, if you, if you see things going on and even if it seems like it's going to be a dumb question, there's, there's, no reason not to ask a dumb question. Yeah. Because if, it might be, the, it, it might actually be question. the right question, yeah. even if it is a dumb question, but it might be the right question to ask, or it might call someone's attention to something that they didn't even notice that you thought they would have seen. Yeah. That's all. All right, Rob, thank you for, uh, by the way, again, uh, congrats on your new role as a Airbus A320 FO. And don't worry before long, those shirts will look like you've been wearing them for 20 years. <laughs> And uh, maybe, maybe take the tags off. Yeah. Take first. the tags off. That's a little, yeah. yeah. Congratulations. So very exciting. We're happy for you. Um, this next one is from someone who asked us not to use their identity. So we're going to say from anonymous one bombardier instructor would always start his pre simulator briefings with the pilot skills list document and have each pilot pick a few of the available skills they wanted to work on. The instructor would then write the chosen skills each pilot made on his evaluation form. From there, he would note examples observed and actively applied by each pilot during the simulator session, and in the subsequent debrief, discuss how well or not well we applied our chosen psychology. Uh, It was a non-lip service application of CRM. Truly wonderful and meaningful. I underline in red the skills most important to me, and added the MEL, CDL, DDG, CAS message relief as critical items to discuss with my crew under differences. I wrote a short narrative, page two, and renamed each document, quote, the captain I aspire to be. This very special higher level thinking instructor made me realize how much I have yet to learn and how much more practice I require. I was first introduced to this instructor when I had well over 12,000 hours and seven typewritings. Wow. I am always a student working on being a better man and crew member. If you happen to have the contact information of the young co-pilot asking how to deal with difficult captains, these two documents might help him. Tell the co-pilot if the difficult captain does not want to be better, there's nothing he can do. Both parties have to want to communicate. APG's foundational character feels genuine and kind. It is nice to hear each member let go of the need to be right and be supportive of others' success. Be well. Oh, thank you. For is he saying that we have good CRM? I think he is. Or yes. she. Anonymous. He or she. Yes, these, mm-hmm. this anonymous person. Um, also sent in some PDFs of the um, the captain I aspire to be. Um, some of the um, uh, topics um in the um, in the briefing and also the uh, pilot skills list, good stuff, and uh, we'll have all of that ITSN. So please check it out and thank you very much, Mister or Mrs. Anonymous, for sending that in. Ahmad, send in the next one. This is Ahmad Don Hamadou from Tropical Abuja, 
in or Abuja in Nigeria, starting to look a lot like Christmas. No, it's starting to look like my case of APG syndrome is advancing in severity. Oh, no. Oh, geez. We thought you had it bad before, Ahmad. Yes, I'm quietly and steadily catching up with you guys, but... One, I've insisted on listening to every single episode out there from 001 to the multiple ones I'm at, the 230 range, 370 range, the 380 to 390 range, and 420 range. (laughs) I go back and forth between these. Secondly, I've even created a mini logbook to keep track of which ones I've listened to recently. And then he attached a screen recording, which I'll have in the show notes if you want to check it out. I don't know about you guys, but that kind of looks like the advancing stages of APG syndrome. It looks like the final and fatal stages (laughs) to be. (laughs) We have an emergency going on here. the terminal. If anybody listening is in the uh, Abuja area, please, please see if you can find Ahmad and and, and shake him out of this. Yeah, slap him around a bit. Slap him around. You've seen airplane, you know, yeah, in the, doing the, that. the hysterical. <laughs> the whole exactly. line of people ready to snap her out of it. I know back in my high school days, the 1990s, my old nickname, no thanks to my friends and classmates, was Jet Fever because I couldn't have a single normal conversation with anyone on anything without somehow relating the subject to one aspect or the other of aviation. And then he put... They were well-crafted analogies or analogies. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they were guys. I'm loving the evolution of the podcast. And I think there ought to be a pandemic of some sort of APG syndrome so that the podcast can be voted by enough people out there to win, not just an Emmy award, but also a Grammy award. The flow of inspiration that I get from you guys is similar to the flow of fuel from tanks to an engine with its afterburner set to 100% power setting. See what I mean by APG syndrome? <laughs> Love you guys and wish you all the best. Uh, P.S. Can APG syndrome cause symptoms that make the affected person wish that a cure for it is never discovered? That's part of the insidious nature yeah. <laughs> of APG syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. I think we he's... don't mention it often because, I mean, it's kind of depressing. <laughs> or is it? Or not. <laughs> Again, that's from Ahmad in uh, Nigeria. And uh, we love you too, man. Really yeah, do. Yeah, we feel for you, Ahmed. <laughs> we're, we're still trying to work on it. And uh, the closest that we've gotten so far, I think, is the uh, go around a cylinder. I'm trying to find that somewhere. Here it is. Why, hello there. My name is Miami Hick. And I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about. APG syndrome. Do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. Think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans. Do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. Will suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Cillin. With only 36 daily doses of an easy to swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Cillin. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Cillin is right for you. Like all medicine, Go Around the Cillin has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yelling of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. 
is that so have we figured out this? is that three a lot of stomach it's yes. three times on the stomach cramps yes and and i think it's like three times an hour you have to take the pill like continuously it's, well, it's 36, 36 daily doses oh, no, no, not three times yeah. an hour that'll be a 12 hour day so one and a half times an hour i think if i did the math right and anyway. has anyone actually seen that pill? You said you mentioned it's easy to swallow, but I suspect it's. Yeah, I have one here. A, it's about it's uh, easy to it's, swallow if you're a it's, horse. It's about this big. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Funny enough, I've got I've got one as well. <laughs> oh yeah, see, uh, yeah. they have a good stock mm -hmm. of these pills. Yeah. that Don't seem to be. I just I just working. took mine. So. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps I we should all have all thirty six at once. We should Is have waited right? for the uh, trial to complete before we actually oh. started taking them. I didn't want to tell you guys we're all just in the trial. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. Let's continue with, oh, this is a good one. Hey, well, they're all good. Dave writes in. Due to the current situation, I haven't been listening as much and as regularly as the APG show was my companion. Oh, okay. Due to the, due to the current situation, I haven't been listening as much and as regularly as the APG, APG show was my companion while driving around UK for work. Having been stuck in my home office for what seems like an eternity, it has seriously limited my opportunity to listen. I am slowly catching up, however, and I do have a bit of feedback regarding the recent shows. I was fighting and failing to hold back the tears listening to Captain Nick's wonderful and moving tribute to his late great father. I was listening when I was in the car in a rare trip out, and heaven knows what other drivers must have been thinking. We had a holiday in Western Australia over Christmas and the New Year, and we spent Christmas Day on Cottleslow Beach, where Andy Anderson spent his youth with the surf club. We also spent a couple of days in Margaret River, spending too much time and too much money in the Eagle Bay Brewery, and spent time in Fremantle exploring the town and spent probably a bit too much time and too much money in the little creatures brewery, which is a must for any visitors to Fremantle. Oh, I like this guy. He, he likes mm -hmm. uh, the breweries. <laughs> yeah. Little creatures is very nice as well. Sounds like it. Having spent time in Andy's old hunting grounds, it was easy to imagine the times they must've had in such a wonderful place. And it's not hard to understand how the environment shaped the man he became. I hope not to bring up old wounds, but condolences once again to Nick and family. And thank you for such a wonderful tribute. I do have a bone to pick with Nick, though. Uh-oh. Now it's turning dark. No, you can't You can't do that. You can't write that nice stuff, and then it doesn't give you permission then to be mean. Sure it does. No. Yeah, I think no. it does. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a clear it's literary... Like here, uh, here in the South, you can say, bless your heart. And <laughs> whatever you like. So here's the bone to pick. As another bloke who, as a young boy, had bedroom walls covered with pictures of the tornado and the Jaguar, I'm somewhat upset that Nick has now shattered my perception of the aircraft I used to draw on a daily basis and that I dreamt of flying in. As an adult, I've been fortunate to work at Acme Fighter Jets during the Tornado Midlife Upgrade Program. The chance to touch and interact with the aircraft went some way to fulfilling my boyhood dream. But all that now lies in tatters after Nick's damning appraisal. But at least I had the chance to get near and touch the tornado, unlike the girl on the famous Athena tennis poster that was also on my wall. <laughs> I, think I, I think I know that poster. Yep. 
Yeah. That was an RAF flight safety poster for a while, do you know? Was it the oh, one that wow. she she unfortunately or fortunately forgot to wear her uh, under things? Yeah. And yeah. the Air Force uh, took it on as a flight safety poster with the um, title, Never Assume Check. <laughs> <laughs> Never Assume Check. That's good. Thank you once again for producing and giving us such a great show. The reintroduction of Miami Rick has been great and all new to me as I started listening after his first stint. I do have a question or two for Rick, but due to the time constraints, I better not ask them together. <laughs> Maybe for another feedback. Good point. I wish you, Captain Jeff, best of luck getting back in the air as soon as possible. And if Dr. Steph is ever coming back to the UK soon, L3 and L4 are giving me serious trouble. I could do with some help. Kind of guards. <laughs> Dave Lakeland. She's got a, she's got a, uh, she's got a will they, will they let me, let me through security. <laughs> 12 inch needle right. just for you. <laughs> yeah. It's quarter inch thick. Yeah, exactly right. Well, I'm very sorry. Uh, I upset you, old chap, but Mother Riley's cardboard airplane was never going to be my favorite. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's, I'm offended. That is pretty damning. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you were trying to communicate to me how much time we have. Okay. Got it. All right. Let's uh, move to this next one from Scott. He said, in response to your discussion of 7,500 on episode 433, I add this film to the aviation library. Apologies if you've discussed it before, as it is directed by a pilot about his old company based on a real incident. I forget how I heard about this film, but at the time I was able to get on Netflix DVD years ago. I felt it captured the reality of flight with no need for a Charlton Heston or Leslie Nielsen and the day-to-day -day challenges of running an airline. The name of the uh, film is Whiskey Romeo Zulu, and uh, he gave us a link to a Wikipedia article about the film. And he said, maybe hard to find on mainstream services. Netflix no longer has, but YouTube has it. Uh, but how is your Spanish? <laughs> Not sure that that has subtitles, despite English being the lingua franca, franca, franca of aviation. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual accident might be subject for discussion. Clear skies, pretty much standard now, and future growth. Scott. Thanks, Scott. I don't know. Have any of you seen the film Whiskey Romeo Zulu? I have not. No. I've not heard I of it. Forgot to uh, put that in the notes. Argentine drama, yeah. Yeah, it was a LAPA, L-A-P-A, Boeing 737-200, one of the classics, went into flames after crashing into a mound in midtown Buenos Aires, causing the death of 65 people, severely injuring 17. Huh. Okay, we'll have to... If anybody out there knows of a version that doesn't have, have them dubbed in Spanish, maybe... Uh, well, I guess that was probably the original... Looking no, at it all the Spanish, yeah, yeah. Oh, we can we can read English subtitles, right? Yeah, but you have to find a version with English subtitles. Oh, okay, that could be the problem. All right. Well, anybody out there with good info info about that, let us know. Um, moving on. Devin said, "Just two videos I wanted to share with the community." You know what? Yeah, let's keep keep going here. Uh, the first being a look into crew rest procedures for pilots with only two crew operations. The pilot shows how his airline encourages napping in the cockpit. 
curious to know, we we do not encourage napping while we're recording the APG show, though. Somebody hit the hit the little electric shock. Get uh, oh, there you go. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Steph. Is that, is that yeah? You're welcome. Is that how? Hold on, get right here. No, not again, not again. Ow. <laughs> Ow. Um, I'm all so, right, man. Curious okay. to know if Nick ever had this procedure at his airline, the the napping in the cockpit thing. I'm sure his co-pilot sometimes caught him napping, but was it because his airline allowed him to? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, I've been napping in the cockpit, but my airline does not allow us to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the old uh, holding the uh, cup of ice water in your lap and then kind of like just nodding off and then kind of like coming back to consciousness and shaking your water and then this ice cold water is in your lap that gets you does no, that happen to you to frequently i've no, never never happened to me yeah it never used to happen to me a lot as a first that. officer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the 727 <laughs> anyway uh the second video is a quick look at how the side stick works in the airbus what took me by surprise was that the pilot disengaged the autopilot in the climb to demonstrate the sensitivity of the side stick I have just one question about the second video. I understand that the demonstration was done in a safe manner, but would you feel comfortable with your co-pilot taking out the autopilot to demonstrate something for his YouTube channel? Um, and then he has a couple of links here, the YouTube links. Thanks for your time and clear skies. Devin from Sacramento. So let's start with the uh, napping in the cockpit part of it. Um, was that something I think you mentioned that was something that your company allowed you all to do, Nick. Is that right? Yeah, they they formalised what was uh, habitual anyway, really. Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly uh, the transatlantic flights uh, or the long uh, night flights. On a particularly long flight, you'll have relief crew, and uh, you'll get a formal break away from the cockpit in the bunk. So, uh, and someone else will sit in your seat for that period. So that you know is is fine. But when there's just the two of you. Yeah, there are periods when uh, it's really, really uh, hard, if not impossible, to uh, stay awake and to take away that risk of you both um, having a period when you're very sleepy and likely to fall asleep. Uh, then we would uh, declare that we were going to need a nap. And uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a formal procedure. So you had to advise the cabin crew. You um, they would then expect a call from the pilot who was going to stay awake uh, every 20 minutes. And if they didn't get a call to the particular galley you nominated, they would then call you, which would wake everybody up. Um, so that was the, the sort of backup. Um, meant that no one was going to visit the flight deck. No one was going to call the flight deck unless there was an emergency. Uh, and... Uh, Whichever pilot it uh, was that was going to take a sleep pushed himself back from the controls. Uh, he was allowed to wear a blanket, but not a duvet because that was considered too thick and might uh, catch on the controls. Uh, he was allowed to put his seat back, and uh, you know you could put earplugs in. You could put a shade on if it was uh, you know a bit of sunshine coming in. Uh, and uh, the the idea was to try and attempt a sleep cycle that stayed inside REM and didn't go into deep sleep. The danger of going into a very deep sleep was that, of course, when you, if you're woken up unexpectedly, you can um, have a bit of a, a start 
And uh, we've seen that happen. Uh, there was an Air Canada uh, first officer who uh, woke up from a very deep sleep and uh, saw some lights ahead, which I think they were a star or a planet, Venus mm -hmm. or something, and thought he there was an aircraft very close to them, and he grabbed the controls and bunted the airplane, and there was uh, injuries in the back. Yeah, a lot of injuries. Um, yeah, so uh, the idea was that if you stayed in REM sleep 40 minutes, uh, then uh, you would still get, get refreshment. You would still f wake up feeling a lot better, but uh, you wouldn't have that danger. Uh, and um, then, you know, if you, if you woke up and you were fine, uh, you know, the other pilot was now nodding off. You know, he would take his turn at a rest. Um, and uh, we used to fill out a form when we did it. Uh, to indicate how much we'd taken and what our duty pattern was, et cetera, so they could uh, um, they would take away all the information regarding who it was, so they would de-identify it, but they kept track on fatigue and how much fatigue on particular flights, and they used that just to put into the big database to try and uh, work out the best way to uh, get, um, you know, best rested pilots, et cetera. Uh, so, so yeah. It's just a formal procedure, and we used to practice it. And, of course, we'd only do it in the cruise, and uh, we would uh, only do it during quiet periods when the workload was low. Sounds like a very regulated, a uh, lot of safeguards um, yeah. part of it. So sounds very, uh, very smart hmm. way of implementing it. Uh, as I mentioned at ACME, we don't have that, but uh, we <laughs> – what's that? Not very comfortable. Not comfortable. To be fair. Yeah. I mean, by the time you've uh, had forty minutes uh, in a in a sleeping in a seat, uh, you wake up with a crick in your neck, and you're a bit cold and shivery, and you know it was, it was never perfect. But if you're really tired, it was the only thing you could do. Yeah, anything to kind of quickly recharge the batteries. I mean, sometimes yeah. like a fifteen or twenty minute nap is just enough to kind of keep you going for another several hours. Well, the danger is that if you don't, uh, you start having micro sleeps mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. where you, you know, literally you are involuntarily closing your eyes and taking a tiny sleep, which can be a few seconds or it might be 20 or 30 seconds. But they discovered that pilots very tired who hadn't taken any kind of a break on a long flight were being, their bodies were forcing micro sleeps on them during the approach. Yeah. So you'd be. I've experienced you know, that. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah, uh, when I was in the Air Force uh, yeah. during operational readiness inspections, ORIs, uh, flying a Category 2 approach and both the aircraft commander and myself having those micro sleeps. Yeah. Because we were so. It's really dodgy. Oh, was, and I thought, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. This is not even a real contingency operation. This is just a. a like an inspection, a test. And I hope we don't crash an airplane because of it. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was back in the eighties. So I think the statute of limitations is over, right? Um, yes, yes, and the little micro sleeps yeah. also, uh, kind of identify the, uh, the times where I kind of dumped the, uh, ice water in my own lap. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been there, I've experienced that, especially, um, Gosh, back in high school when I was doing a lot of swimming, um, you'd swim from five to six thirty in the morning, go to school all day, swim in the afternoon, work in the evening. Like lifeguard, my my entire life revolved around a pool at that point. But um, yeah, you get to to school in the middle of the day, and you know you only slept for like 
maybe six hours if you were lucky the night before. And that was most nights. And, you know, you're busy. You're, you're doing a lot of homework and schoolwork and, and physically tired from you know, all the athletic endeavors. And, you know, you're in like second period. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And you're just like, you know, and you don't even move. You just know you've been asleep for, and you've missed, you know, some sort of critical information or all of a sudden the teacher's calling on you and you're like, yes, was there, <laughs> but I, I know what that feels like. And it's, it's not really a good feeling. And you certainly don't want that happening if you are at the controls of any sort of aircraft or other large moving vehicle. Now in the Air Force flying the 141, we did, we were allowed to take naps. And in fact, it was, I think I've talked about this a few times on the show in previous episodes where, um, you know, one of the common questions as we were, you know, getting toward the top of climb, uh, the aircraft commander would usually uh, survey the uh, crew. Uh, in most cases, it was just the aircraft commander and the co-pilot and then a flight engineer. Um, and uh, he'd ask the first officer or co-pilot or whatever we call them, um, you know, how do you feel? And usually my response was, I feel okay. And he goes, okay, I'm going to take a 20 minute or whatever. So we were allowed to do it, but I do remember the one time over the Pacific ocean or the Atlantic, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Probably both where I said, yeah, I'm kind of feeling a little, I could, I could take a nap. So I took my nap and then after about 20, 30 minutes, I woke up and looked over at the aircraft commander and he was sleeping. And <laughs> then I looked back at the first or the flight engineer and kind of did one of those things, you know, up in front of his eyes to see if he was actually, you know, studying the panel or if he was sleeping. And of course, as usual, he was sleeping. And that's when I really, my, the adrenaline really shot and I'm thinking, okay, where, where are we? You know, how many reports have we missed, et cetera? You know, is the airplane actually, you know, where it's supposed to be? Is it heading in the right direction? That kind of thing. So, yeah, it has um, it has its pitfalls. So you have to be careful and have to have some safeguards. This, this is entirely anecdotal um, on my part, because um, typically midday, especially after lunch, you know, you kind of get that. Two to four circadian low again. Low. Yeah, circadian you get that circadian low. low again and, you know, all your all your blood has pooled in your gut trying to digest your food for you mm -hmm. and it's not perfusing your brain as well. Um, you know, there've been times where I've, I've had a minute or had 15 minutes like, okay, I'm just going to close my eyes for 15 minutes. Oftentimes I wake up after that feeling way worse than I did beforehand. Oh. You know, like I could have just kept sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is purely anecdotal from my part, but I've actually found that when I feel that happening, I'm better off getting up, being active for a few minutes like doing something to kind of restore that blood flow, especially if I'm not going to be, it's a little different because I'm not going to be working for the next, you know, 10 hours and I haven't disrupted my sleep cycle per se, but um, sometimes the short nap is actually counterproductive for me. Oh, huh. okay. Well. Now, it's a little harder on an, on an aircraft to get up and, you know, run well, around good. a little bit or do some, uh, you can do some push-ups or some, uh, you know, jumping jacks or do something. 22 push-ups. Yeah, there you go. Um, the second part of his question was this second video that I didn't have the same reaction that Devin did regarding, it, it says it took him by surprise when the pilot disengaged the autopilot in the climb to demonstrate the sensitivity of the side stick. And I mean, I'm watching this thing thinking, what's the big deal? I mean, it's just uh, the automation's off, but you're in control of the airplane. You're being a pilot. And even the, 
even the actions of the captain in, in demonstrating the um, uh, the effectiveness or sensitivity of the side stick controller, there was nothing that was really that unusual. In fact, I think that if you were a passenger in the back of that airplane, you probably would never have known that uh, the uh, auto flight system had been turned off. Um, so I'm not sure what was so surprising about that. I mean, we, you know, it's not unusual. I think this kind of almost makes me feel like a lot of people feel this way about automation. Like, oh, you, you can't, you can't turn it off. You got to keep it on the whole time. And it's dangerous if you take it off, but I'd say it's kind of dangerous if you don't ever disconnect it and actually hand fly the airplane. I don't know. What do you think about it? Did you see the uh, video, Nick? Yeah, I just reminded myself of that particular bit. And mm-hmm. uh, the only thing I was um, going to say was, uh, as long as he wasn't in RVM some space where you are required to uh, fly with the autopilot, I mm-hmm. didn't have a problem with that at all. Uh, it was I in mean, the climb, so, yeah. Yeah, but he was at above 27,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, he's flying the airplane by another means. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to let the autopilot do it all the time. Uh, it's actually quite useful to practice handling the aircraft even at high level because that's an area where we very rarely hand fly the aircraft and uh, people can get themselves into big trouble at high level because they yeah. forget the principles of uh, uh, aerodynamics and what happens to the airplane up there. Mm-hmm. So it's a useful reminder, but uh, no, I don't have a problem at all. Yeah. So he says, would you feel comfortable with your co-pilot taking off the autopilot to demonstrate something for his YouTube channel? And Well, that's they... not quite the same thing, is no. it? No. Uh, yeah. Some... You know, it depends on what your, uh, your company's policy on yeah. YouTube videos is. Exactly. That's First a whole different You know, if they were doing it, you know, if they had, if they have their the blessing and permission to do all of that and they know exactly what they're going to go out and do and show and it's been okayed. You know, and they're flying the aircraft in a safe manner, like Nick Nick mentioned they were. Sure, exactly. And 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 I don't think it makes any difference at all, really. Um, but uh, in this case, from what I remember, I think it was the captain that was actually doing the filming and doing yes, the was, yes. manipulation. Mm-hmm. So, but having said that, he's hand holding the camera in one hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure that his first officer is closely monitoring everything as he's supposed to I'm be, sure. right? Didn't look as professional as some of the ones yeah. I've seen. I didn't have any problem at all with it myself. No. All right. Well, guess what time it is? Yes. Playtales. The best part of the show, which is this week's episode or installment of The Plain Tales. So let's get on with it. Old pilots playing tales. Names to conjure with. If you, dear listener, are anything like the usual aviation enthusiast, you'll have a list of famous names in your head that you can quote at parties to bore your friends like Wilbur and Orville, Blerio, Richthofen, Lindbergh, Sikorsky, Whittle, Jaeger, and such. But I wonder if you can play some of the others who deserve recognition, like Charles Taylor. Certainly if you went to the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, or have recently been awarded an FAA Mechanics Certificate, I would hope at least the name or face would be familiar. It was back in 1868 that Charlie was born. 
in a log cabin that lay on the banks of the Sangamon River, which winds its way through Piet County in Illinois. He quit school at the age of 12 and started work in the bindery of the Nebraska State Journal. He enjoyed working with his hands and found he had a talent for it. He was 24 when he married his girl, Henrietta, and they moved to Dayton, where she had been brought up. Charlie found work in the Stodden Manufacturing Company, who hired him to make farm machinery and build some of the latest fashion in transport, bicycles. After a while, he moved to a new firm, a family business, fixing bicycles, but soon he was being asked to help run the place. One day, the owners came to Charlie and asked if he could help with a project of theirs. They wanted him to build a lightweight internal combustion engine. Charlie scratched his head and told them he'd give it a go. He was given some rough sketches of what was needed and he sat down to design his very first engine. He got a nearby foundry to cast an aluminium block and crankcase and then relying entirely on his own craftsmanship and ingenuity and using only a lathe, drill press and his hand tools, he cut and fitted every other part himself. It only took him six weeks, and when finished, it was a marvel of simplicity and reliability. He'd been asked to build an engine that could produce eight horsepower, but in fact, his little engine that weighed only 152 pounds, that's less than 70 kilos, could produce an amazing 12 horsepower. Charlie's engine had a vital job to do, and a few months later, it was mounted in the right flyer. As Orville lay in the cradle of the world's first successful powered aircraft, it roared away, winding the chains that turned the propellers, launching the Wright brothers to fame and success. Charlie never sought notoriety from his work with the Wright brothers, and few ever recognised his contributions but his efforts were pivotal to the birth of aviation. Charlie always wanted to learn to fly, but never did. The Wrights refused to teach him, and tried to discourage the idea. They said that they needed him in the shop to service their machines, and if he learned to fly, he'd be gadding about the country and they'd never see him again. At the ripe old age of 67 and almost penniless, Taylor obtained a job in the toolroom of North American Aviation. He never told them of his association with the rights, and when questioned about it, he replied, Why should I? Most of us have heard of Sir Frank Whittle, the man who single-handedly invented the turbojet engine, but little is heard of his German equivalent, Hans von Ohain. Completely independent of the Royal Air Force officer, he was simultaneously designing the Heinkel engine HES-1, which would successfully power the HE-178. 
His engine ran during the same month as Whittle's first engine, and the Heinkel 178 would fly operationally first. The aircraft was small, with a high-mounted straight wing of wooden construction. It featured a nose intake, a metal fuselage, and a tailwheel design. But when Ernst Udet and Erhard Milch, ministers of aircraft production and design, watched, they were unimpressed. It could reach 372 miles an hour, that's nearly 600 kilometers per hour, but only had an endurance of 10 minutes. Undeterred, Von O'Hain went on to develop the HES-8, which would power the HE-280 fighter bomber. At this point in the war, there were a number of turbojets being developed in Germany, and Heinkel was so impressed by the concept that he headhunted other designers to join his company, which led to the advanced HES-011 with a two-stage axial compressor design. This engine was planned to power a raft of new German military aircraft, such as the Focke-Wulf Flitzer fighter, the Blumenvoss P212 tailless fighter, the Heinkel P1079V tailed all-weather night fighter, the Heinkel 343 four-engined medium bomber, and several Messerschmitt jet fighters. However, there is little doubt that Sir Frank deserved credit for the invention of the jet engine since he openly filed patents for his design in 1930, a full seven years before von O'Hain's design first ran. But by the time they had their engines into flying aircraft, the German had more than caught up his aircraft getting airborne in 1939, whereas Whittle's Gloucester E-28 didn't take off until 1941, after both the German and Italian versions. Olive Ann Meller opened her first bank account aged seven. By 11, she was writing cheques to pay all the family bills. When her family moved to Wichita, she skipped high school, attending the American Secretarial and Business College instead. At the age of only 20, she got a job as an office secretary and bookkeeper at a newly formed company, Travel Air Manufacturing, in Wichita, owned by Clyde Cessna, Lloyd Stearman, and Walter Beach. The company made aeroplanes, and by the time their first Travel Air Model A biplane was in production, Olive had taken the time to understand how every part worked, and then about how the aviation business operated from the floor up. Her enthusiasm and work ethic was soon noticed, and she was promoted to become the office manager and secretary to Walter Beach. Their first aircraft was gaining popularity, particularly after it took the first three places in the 1925 Ford Reliability Tour. By the end of the 20s, Cessna and Stearman had moved on, whilst Travel Air gained popularity with the flying public when their aircraft, Mystery Ship, 
won the first Thompson Trophy race, becoming the first civilian plane to defeat military fighter aircraft in open competition. By now, Olive and Walter were a married couple, and with the departure of their partners, they scraped together enough to form Beach Aircraft. Their five-seat, single-engine biplane featured a fine interior, staggered wings for visibility and control, retractable landing gear, and speeds greater than the fastest military scouts. They entered their stagger wing into the 1936 Bendix Trophy race, and Olive persuaded female aviators, Louise Thadden and her co-pilot Blanche Noyes, to fly their aircraft. In their flight from New York to Los Angeles, Thadden and her co-pilot were victorious, setting a new world record. As the company prospered, Walter Beach became ill, but Olive Ann stepped up into his position as the head of the company becoming the first female executive in the aircraft industry. Under her guidance, the company retooled for the military and opened new avenues. Almost every Army Air Corps bombardier and navigator was trained by Beach. Their factories were kept busy building more than 7,400 military aircraft. The end of the war saw the beginning of the Twin Beach Lines and the iconic V-tailed Bonanza, an instant success. In 1950, Walter succumbed to his illness, but as the chairwoman and president, Olive Ann continued to nurture the company from success to success. The company diversified into producing missiles and systems for NASA space missions, as well as continuing to produce renowned aircraft such as the Baron, Musketeer and King Air. After a lifetime of achievement, which included a merger with Raytheon, in which Olive was elected director, she had seen her company grow from 10 employees to 7,800 with an annual sales figure of over $265 million. By the time she had quietly passed away in her sleep in 1993, Olive Ann Beach had been awarded the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy by the National Aeronautics Association, the highest honour the aviation fraternity bestows, for her contributions to the aviation industry and she'd been inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Two years after her death, she was also inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. During Bessie Coleman's short life, she made her mark on the world of aviation like no other. She was born into a family of sharecroppers in 1892 and worked in the cotton fields when she wasn't studying in a small Texan segregated school a four-mile walk away. She was the tenth of thirteen children. Her mother, an African-American, and her father, had grandparents who were Cherokee. In her early twenties, she worked as a manicurist and in a chili parlour, and hearing stories from pilots returning from the Great War, she started to dream of becoming a pilot too. 
American flight schools wouldn't take blacks nor women, but she managed to befriend Robert Abbott, founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender, who encouraged her to study abroad. He helped her to gain sponsorship, and after learning to speak French in a Chicago language school, she left for Paris and a seat in an old Newport 564 biplane. In 1921, she became the first black woman and first Native American to earn both a pilot's license and an international aviation license from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. When she returned to America, she became a media sensation. There were few avenues, though, for her to benefit from her qualification except the dangerous world of barnstorming, something she was currently ill-equipped to do, but there was little chance of her finding anyone in the United States to teach her, so she returned to France. She continued to train there and met Anthony Fokker, who encouraged her to travel to Germany to train with one of the company's pilots. Returning home, she became a star on the barnstorming circuit and was much admired flying her Curtis Jenny biplane. Her very first event was in honour of the veterans of the 369th Infantry Regiment, the mainly African-American soldiers known as the Harlem Hellfighters. She gained a reputation as a skilled and daring pilot who would stop at nothing to complete a difficult stunt. In Los Angeles, she broke a leg and three ribs when her plane stalled and crashed, but the thrill of stunt flying and the admiration of the cheering crowds were only part of Coleman's dream. Committed to promoting aviation and combating racism, Bessie spoke to audiences across the country about the pursuit of aviation and goals for African Americans. She absolutely refused to participate in aviation events that denied people such as herself attendance. She had a dream of establishing a school for young black aviators, but she wouldn't live that long. However, she did have an enormous influence on a whole generation of African Americans. The pioneer aviator, Lieutenant William Powell, dedicated his book, black wings to Bessie Coleman, saying, We have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. In April 1926, at the age of only 34, Bessie Coleman took off in her recently purchased Curtis Jenny JN4. The aircraft had a history of mechanical faults and her family and friends implored her not to fly, but she took off with her publicity agent, also a pilot, to prepare for a parachute jump the next day. She was flying without her straps done up so that she could look over the side of the cockpit at the landing ground when, at 2,000 feet, the aircraft unexpectedly pitched over, throwing Bessie from the cockpit. She fell to her death. Her agent fought the aircraft but was unable to regain control of the machine and died on impact amongst the fiery wreckage. On examination of the crash, 
it was discovered that the controls had been jammed by a wrench used to service the engine. After her death, Bessie Coleman was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the National Aviation Hall of Fame as well as the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. Roads, schools and scholarships have been named for her and the first African-American female astronaut in space, Mae Jemison, carried a picture of Bessie on her first space mission. Finally, a name to really conjure with, Harry Houdini. The famous Hungarian illusionist, escapologist, vaudeville and film star was capable of many seemingly miraculous feats, including that of piloting an aircraft. It is claimed by many that he became the first man to fly a powered aircraft in Australia when, in a fanfare of publicity, he made three flights at Digger's Rest in Victoria, near Melbourne, in his Voisin biplane, which he had shipped over for the feat. His historic flight was in fact certified by the Aerial League of Australia, but a flight made in a Wright Model A just a few months earlier by the English racing driver Colin de Fries is now accepted as the first. This is despite arguments by Digger's Rest Historic Society that Harry's flight was the first recorded flight, and others say that since de Fries crashed after only a hundred yards, his wasn't a controlled flight at all. The Aviation Historical Society of Australia gave Colin de Fries credit as the first, and even Harry Houdini couldn't wriggle out of that one. I see what you did there. Oh, you like that, did you? Yeah, I love that. Uh, <laughs> even Harry Houdini couldn't wriggle out of that one. You're quite right. Yes, I, <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't know Houdini was a pilot. Neither did I, not until I uh, looked at this. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, there are just so many people out there who made marvelous feats of aviation uh, and were heavily involved in aeronautics, and they many of them have fallen to the wayside. Of course, some of them, uh, you know, are renowned uh, Americans, so it may be just the rest of the world that's forgotten. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm hoping there'll be a few new ones in there for people. Yeah, the one that you started with, uh, Charles, whatever, the guy that made the internal combustion engine for the Wright Flyer. Charles Taylor. Charles Charlie Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, never heard of him. Oh, there you go. Well, yeah. uh, he he's on the uh, certificate of, of mechanics, and someone said oh. some of the pilots as well, but... Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know who's on your certificate. Is there a face on your certificate? Yeah, I have uh, two, uh, but it's mm -hmm. um, the Wright oh, Brothers. Right. Or the Wright Brothers, Brothers yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we don't have mechanics, uh, yeah, certificates. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, I was happy to hear um, you know, some women's names in there. Um, I think probably Bessie Coleman's fairly well known, at least here in the United States, but maybe not so much Olive Beach and some of the stuff she did, so. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very Great. much so. An excellent one as usual. Thank Thanks. you, sir. 
All right. How you feeling, Nick? You want to stay with us a little bit longer or you want to call it quits? No, no, I can handle another half an hour. We've got uh, 35 minutes to go. All right. Well, then let's keep moving. Uh, Greg from the very large donkey um, circular blade company. Air <laughs> air movement. Air movement. Machinery. Machinery company. Yes. I can see now why they changed the name to the big ass fan company. Um, yeah. He writes, uh, sorry, I missed the live recording of 435 and the story of the Q400 striking the donkey. As soon as I heard that, I immediately thought that Fanny, the big ass fans mascot, had gotten out again and was running loose at the airport. Luckily, she is safe and sound in her pen. That's good to hear. As I was listening to 435 the other day, I got a chuckle from Brent's feedback about his kids calling the APG crew his imaginary friends. <laughs> My family makes fun of me all the time when I try to tell them about something I heard on the show. We, wife and two kids, recently drove from Lexington, Kentucky to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to help my son move from one apartment to another. The drive from Lexington to Baton Rouge is about 12 hours, so we decided that we would create a family playlist to listen to on the drive. Each family member got to select three hours of music for the playlist. I'd like to say that my three hours was an APG episode, but I was all caught up on episodes, so I just selected music instead. But... Know that my family was truly nervous that I was going to put an APG episode on there. They just don't appreciate quality listening material. Keep up the good work. <laughs> I feel very you, sorry for your family if you're going to inflict us on there. You, you, you could have picked one of one of the uh, vintage episodes with Jeff only, and then your family would have just Everybody's, been asleep. Yeah, and you, would, you would have had a nice, peaceful car ride. Yeah, but Greg may have fallen hours. asleep, though. That's well, dangerous. That's a, that's a hazard. Yeah. Yes. Those micro naps we were talking about earlier. Mm, mm -hmm. yeah, no, it wouldn't be a micro nap. It would be like, <laughs> like it would be an hour. <laughs> deep, deep sleep. Deep, deep sleep. <laughs> Steph, in your quest to hit all the national parks, when you decide to go to Mammoth Cave, let me know and we can arrange a meetup. It's been a while since I've been down to Mammoth Cave. Yeah, sounds good. It's um one of the next ones on my list because it's... You know, just thinking of which ones are closest to me of the ones I've not been to. That's the next closest. So I looked it up after he wrote this feedback and I thought that looks like a really, really cool place. I'd like to go. You there know, too. I, I actually, I you may have think gone. I may have been there as a very small child. Mm -hmm. Like I looked at, I pulled up the pictures of it. And I was like, Oh, I've been to a place like this. Hmm. And there was a trip that we took. I mean, we visited Cincinnati frequently and I want to say that perhaps we went down there one time, but I was very young and, it doesn't count. I have to do it again. Yeah. If I did go. I don't have any pictures. Count. Of course it counts if you were there. I don't have any photographic evidence. And it's just like, <clears> I looked <throat> at it and I had this moment of like, oh my gosh, that's really familiar. That's probably like, I think I've been there. <laughs> your family's hiding the pictures to make you yeah. go there. Yeah, probably. <laughs> now, I'm just curious. Are there mammoths down Mammoth Cave? Yes. At one time there were. Oh, okay. Cool. I don't know. Probably I mean, mammoth, not now, but I don't know about probably it. Probably mammoth but, tusks and stuff like that. Down there, I would imagine. I don't know. The big woolly well, mammoth. Well, I need to wait for the, the caves to actually be reopened because I think they were not open due to coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, continuing, uh, Ralph sends this in. He goes, uh, oops, looks like, okay, before I read. So he, he sends a picture of this article 
about what happens to planes when they're retired. You know, people out there wondering, you know, what happens to these airplanes? Well, there's a picture, an image of an airplane, uh, kind of a silhouette. The picture is taken from the perspective on the ground, looking up to an airplane, let's say, coming in on final with the gear down, etc. And he says, looks like the number one and number four jets dropped off on the way to the graveyard. And the article is talking about the 747. And in fact, the caption of the photo says the iconic jumbo jet has fallen victim to the slump in air travel. Well, of course, this is not a Boeing 747. It looks like it might be a Boeing 767-400 maybe uh, based on the wingtips. Um, But uh, yeah, definitely not a 747, which has four engines. The journalists strike again. (laughs) Don't they always? Yeah. Ralph, are you surprised? Come on. Not really. Uh, Sean writes, in case anyone wants them, I came across uh, I came across an aircraft salvage company selling Mad Dog seats from Acme's sister airline. Uh, that would be Delta. They also have other parts for auction to build your own airplane in the backyard. <laughs> A little DIY project. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, if your family's concerned about your imaginary friends that you talk to, and then you start building an airplane in your backyard out of, you know, they're going to be really concerned. Yeah, I mean, the, my, yeah. my yard's not too small back there, but I think that uh, it's not quite big enough to put an 88 or a 90 in. There are some bits I'd like. I'd, I'd like the boiler. Uh, I'd like the chimney. Mm, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, the the driver's cabin, you know, with the big old where you shovel the coal. Uh, yeah. That, that looked cool. True, mm-hmm. true. And you could use that like uh, for true. like the big green egg, you know, to kind of shovel in the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the charcoal great. into the multi-purpose. Yeah, multi-purpose. Yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, love the podcast and all that you guys do. Keep it up. Regards, Sean Whitman. And he has a... Well, I wish of- I could, but I'm getting on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Bam. That's what um, she said. Also. Okay. Here we go. That's what she said. <laughs> okay. Better late than never. Paul sent us some feedback. You want to listen to it? Yes, please. All right, here we go. Hello, APG crew. This is Paul from between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. I hope everybody is doing good. I had a friend from Slovakia ask me a question that I thought would be great for your feedback. He is originally from the United States, and he ordered some books. I think they were coming from around the Nebraska area. And a friend of his in Slovakia or over here told him it would take at least three or four weeks before the book may even show up, if it shows up at all. So I'm kind of curious. With... uh, Everybody flying cargo, mostly right now. Is this true that even though cargo has seen really a good amount of business, is this true that still it's really hard to receive anything from a foreign country? Please let me know what your thoughts are. Thank you again, and be safe. 
So thank you, Paul, for sending in the, uh, he used the uh, SpeakPipe software, and you can do the same by uh, heading over to the website. And I think it's under the Contact Us uh, page. There's a link to SpeakPipe there. And um, anyway, um, so sending a book, how long did he say it was going to take to send a Three or four weeks, I think. That, you know, it doesn't sound that out of the realm of possibility to me. As I guess it depends on, a lot of times when you send books, it depends on what kind of of mm-hmm. uh, service that you send you it. Media mail. Yeah, media mail takes forever. I mean, a long like, time, but yeah, it's very but cheap. It's cheap. Very cost yes. effective. And especially when you're sending you know a heavy it? book or something. How do you guarantee it's going airmail? I mean, it might be being shipped. Well, that's what you have to probably specify. Yeah. Um, it depends on who you ship it with. And even if you send it like airmail and you're sure of that, like you send it via FedEx or UPS or DHL or something like that, a lot of times the shipping part of it's not what takes so long. It's the, it gets to the customs of the country customs, that yep. <laughs> you're going and to. There's, and a, there's, there's, there's a little bit of a log jam there. And, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, and that of make you sure that what it. you've shipped is what you actually shipped and they're going to yeah. allow it in the country and that mm-hmm. you don't know like yeah. some sort of duty on it. And yeah. If you, if you said it FedEx, it could end up in a deserted island with Tom Hanks for you know, a year or Four two. years. Four years. There you go. Yeah. So That's a possibility. That might explain it. Mm-hmm. Not, then, not that common, but then your football's going to end up all messed up and covered <laughs> your in volleyball. Blood and yeah, your volleyball was it? Okay, <laughs> yeah, football, volleyball. It's been it's been on TV Whatever. here recently. <laughs> oh, okay. Watched it recently. Wilson, Wilson. Yeah, that that's another possibility, but I don't know. I think there are a lot of variables when it comes to shipping things and from what country to what country, and then yeah, you know, the, and, I, and I wonder sometimes uh, how much of the delay is because the person hasn't got what you want. They've got to order it from someone else and wait for that to arrive before they ship it on. So well, I ordered, speaking of books, I ordered a book from Canada. Long way away. Really? Yeah. Like Toronto. <laughs> was like, I don't yeah. know where you look upwards to Canada. Like Canada's <laughs> in heaven. <laughs> anytime anytime <laughs> locations get mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> there are maps on my wall right here. Oh, so. oh is that what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. That's why there's upward glances when specific locations are mentioned. Um, just, yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago? And it didn't say that they weren't in stock. And then, like, two days ago, I got an email from the, the publishing company or the, yeah, because I think it was coming directly from the publisher. I said, oh, we just needed a phone number before we could send this to you. I was like, well, okay. So I gave them my phone number, and then I didn't hear anything back after that, and I still haven't received <laughs> a book. So should get it sometime right. next year. I hope so. I, I mean, have, I, I actually ordered a few of them because they were they were going to be gifts for people. So as long as they come in time for Christmas, I should be okay. You know, you wouldn't think that it would be that big of a deal to ship something either from Canada to U.S. or vice versa. But I have sent several things in the last couple of months to Liz. And it is a, oh, it's a nightmare. I mean, in fact, uh, there's, a, there's an item that she was supposed to receive a couple of months ago. And it went through customs. They opened up the package just to inspect it. And the tripod for this light that I sent her somehow never made it back into the box. And you need the tripod stand portion to uh. for this thing to work. 
And the darn thing, I uh, just got an email the other day and says, uh, yeah, it looks like it's still out of stock. So it may be another month or two <laughs> before you see it. Oh, uh, no. That's BH and BNH photo. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but, I need so to call them not to go there again. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. If you go to the store itself, you don't have to worry about the shipping part, but it's just the, Although, I've never had enough, issues. If you're, if you're sending stuff to the United States, I mean, I order, you know, if you order something online and it comes from usually somewhere in Asia, a lot of times they just like double bubble wrap it and then like wrap it up in clear tape. So that's like impossible to even open in the first place. That mm-hmm. seems to get to me in like no trouble. Yeah. It never gets inspected. It never gets ripped open. <laughs> they look at it and any, go. It could be literally anything in there. Yeah, right? it's, it's going to be like, way mm, too much work for me to take that apart. We're just going to assume that it. this is it's good. <laughs> some sort of crappy, you know, internet product. Could be like, seeds. That has zero consequence and we're just going to send it on. The Chinese have been sending a whole bunch of seed packets to people. In the seed packets. Yeah, country. I heard about that. Yeah. I think in the UK as well. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, I'm not sure that did uh, any help at all for uh, for Paul, but um, if anybody has any it better probably ideas. probably could take some time. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Just yeah. the way it is. Way better to have anything, anything so to do take with... a vacation when, it's, when you're cleared and able to do so. Yeah. I don't think it's got anything to do with Miami Rick and the fact that he flies very slowly. That might have something to do with it, but mm-hmm. he's not Possibly. here to defend himself, so... We should yeah. probably wait before let's, we let's say him. that's true. Then it's true. okay, that's yeah. true. <laughs> it's because of Ma- it's because uh, Miami Rick. Yeah, mm-hmm. so nothing we can do about that. Before I go to the next one, uh, something I don't know why I just thought of it now, uh, but it, it's been in my head a couple of times during the show. Um, somebody on one of our YouTube videos had said, "English countryside." London is nowhere near the English countryside. And I think that somebody listening wasn't listening clearly to the intro when we talk about from his studio in the English countryside, because at, at the end of that intro, I say uh, for used to work for an airline based in London. So I think he's thinking that you live in London, but you don't. You live in the English countryside. No, I have 50 miles from uh, there, Heathrow. It's not London. And that's, you know, luckily London hasn't spread quite that far Not yet. yet. It's, it's got about halfway here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Getting there. <laughs> yeah, it's getting there. It's doing its best. Yeah. So just to be clear. Uh, and there is has, lovely countryside. Yes, it's a lovely right, countryside right home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, we love it here. We, we consider ourselves quite rural. 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 Where's Tucker? Yeah. Hiding. <laughs> banished All from right. the studio. And this is it. This is our last piece of feedback. Hooray! Yeah. The Adventures. Oh, oh I know. Ivor and Tarquin. Ivor the engine. <laughs> I've a nasty patch of skin. <laughs> ahoy, ahoy. Greetings all. It's Captain Tarquin here. Captain Tarquin. Uh, freshly returned from my working holiday in the beautiful and helpful country of Pakistan. <laughs> I'm now licensed up to my eyeballs. Just stick me in an airplane and I'll have a go at steering it in the right direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, enough of the frivolous niceties. I have returned to the fair isles of Blighty and I'm looking for employment in the flying game. You girls and boys may be able to help. I know in the past my contributions to your little show might be viewed as a touch frivolous, but no more. I have a serious question. Now that I'm part of your exclusive group, I need your help. 
I realize that flying passengers is a very difficult area at the moment, but the cargo world is still flourishing, and that young Rick fella may be able to answer my query. I'm very keen to build my flying experience in the freight world. I'm aware this will be a major loss to the passenger world, but needs must. If I remember correctly, the grumpy one on your show was doing one of his very, very captivating story pieces, and the sad, aren't they all, tale was about a cargo flight, and sadly the precious cargo of cows perished in the accident. Also, I believe the young lad Rick had, uh, or the young Rick lad has mentioned flights carrying racehorses. Now cows and horses have as much right to fly as everyone and everything else, but I have one question, and I need a satisfactory answer before I commit my aviation career to moving freight around the world. Now, how can I put this without a, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking we probably should have waited until Rick was on the show to do this one. Should we continue or not? Mm, you can, you can read it. I mean, you've already it. gotten like, like 75% of the way through it. Yeah. yeah we, so we can also we can read it and then okay. we can leave it as you a cliffhanger. Correct us. Stay tuned. Okay. Yeah. We may not have the right answer here, but uh, okay. We'll continue here. All right. So let's see, where did I leave off? Um, Let's see. Before I commit my aviation career to moving freight around the world, now how can I put this without upsetting the listening public? Animals, all animals have needs, just like human animals, but humans have evolved uh, a system to satisfy these needs. What I'm asking is what do they do do with the do do? If you get my drift, <laughs> are the aircraft they use old and frankly on the slippery slope to the boneyard or is it, or is there a highly sophisticated system that swooshes the unwanted doo-doo away? I'm hoping for the latter. And whilst I have I've got your attention, Rick, can you smell the livestock whilst you're flying the old airplane? Anyway, looking forward to your answers. Toodle pip for now. Love and kisses. Captain Torka. Tarquin chalks away. <laughs> Very good. Well, congratulations, uh, Captain Tarquin. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, exciting. straight to captain, eh? On your very I'm a little highly... concerned with his greeting, though, that he might be a boat captain instead. Oh, ahoy, that's true. Ahoy, ahoy, ahoy. And I'm a little concerned about the country through which he received this um, this license. Yes. So you might want to check to make sure that that's still valid. Anywho, um, I, it reminded me of the feedback that we received a show or two ago by the um, <laughs> the DC-8 freight guy that uh, carried all the monkeys. Monkeys. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like 1,000 right. thousand thousand passengers monkeys. or something. 1,350-something yeah. or whatever it was. And, and, and I think, See, I was actually concerned with that and this particular situation. I think that he kind of said There are some throwing that activities that yeah. occur. There, I think he said you know, that it did not smell projectile pleasant at all. So no, wouldn't have thought so. Uh, the answer I think Tarquin is uh, nappies. Ah, you put <laughs> on the, the horses, nappies the, on, on the, the livestock. The yeah. and livestock. They, they put nappies on the livestock. Very, very large. Uh, in fact, that's the first officer's job is to go and change all the nappies. Well, good thing he's not a first um, officer. Exactly. I was just saying that's one of Rick's main. <laughs> um, uh, reasons that he did his command course. He he just got a bit fed up with all the nappies. That's enough so, for me. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. 
But I, mean, I don't think it's so much uh, the nappies. It's it's the turning them on their back and powdering them down afterwards mm. is the problem. Yeah, putting all the, the talcum powder on. All the talcum powder, also, yeah. yeah. So I, you, I heard that they don't quite enjoy that as much as, you know. So no, you actually no. have to change them? See, I, I would just think you just put the darn nappy on there and then if let you it go. Tried, have you tried leaving a nappy on, a, on something for like 14 hours? Oh my God! I have not tried that. No, I that have would to be say. so mean. No. Yes, not part of my experience. Well, you you may end up in that situation. I wish you well in the future. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was Brent. It was thirteen hundred and five monkeys. Okay, thirteen hundred and five. Yeah. <laughs> Does it, do right. that include the flight engineer? Probably. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Was he wearing? He was one of the thirteen hundred and five. Was he? <laughs> And was he wearing a diaper? That's what we'd like to know. A nappy. All right. Well, that's a perfect way to close this show, I'd say. Oh, yeah. Um, Uh, Yes. We've uh, we've, we've gone through the news and the feedback and caught you up with what's going on with us. Not a lot. And uh, now uh, it's time for us to say thank you for watching and listening to the show and downloading it it's found where all fine podcasts are served Um, we have a website where you can go if you want to learn more about the about the crew uh, the community which is the best part of this whole thing Um, other niceties on the website uh, plain tales page we have uh, merchandise and we have the library and we have um, well so many more things just a great place to go. Please check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we are also on the social meets. We are. You can head over to twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. Uh, it's a good place to find out when we're going to be recording the, uh, the zoo, the, the menagerie of monkeys and livestock and horses that is our live show. <laughs> <laughs> and if we decide to change the time last minute, good place to check on that. Um, you can also find us uh, on Instagram, also at APG Crew. I haven't posted anything there in forever, but um, I might someday. You never know. And you never know. It's a possibility. And Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So we will hope to see you on the social feeds. Absolutely. And we're also on Slack. So you can be a slacker by just listening to what Hillel has to say. Uh, let's see if Hillel can uh, come to us and tell us a little a bit about uh, Slack. Hello? Ah, oh yeah! Delta P! APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Don't forget to wash your hands. Ah, there he goes. All right. Should be what, 20 seconds? What the heck is on this hand towel, Jeff? <laughs> Don't worry about it. What'd you say, sir? You need to get your plumbing fixed. <laughs> yeah, we do. A lot of problems in this house. 
All right. Well, uh, also a big round of applause for Liz, hey. even though she's not here with us right now live and in my ear telling me what to do, but she is up in her Lakeside Cottage in um, well North Toronto. vacation. And a nice vacation, but she is still, while she's up there, doing a lot of work behind the scenes. So thank you, Liz, for all of that. And uh, we look forward to your return. I think next show she should be with us. So we look forward to having you back. And until next week, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, everybody. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy